Hello and welcome to episode 115 of The Game Pit. I'm in the room with two people today. One of them is Ronan, unfortunately. It's a triple threat tonight, Sean. It is, it is. And I've got to remember not to look at you, because I'm used to looking at the screen, but look at the microphone when I'm talking. That's first recording note. And welcome guest, Puria, back to the pit. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> you welcome yourself. I did, yes. It's great um, to have you. Thank you. I don't know if I can be in the same room as P Dog with those soulful eyes. <laughs> I just I'm tearing up already. It's very emotional. <laughs> I hope he likes all the games because if he doesn't, it's that droopy ears. <laughs> Looks like ears. What are they gonna slide down his face? <laughs> to be honest, it took me so long to find a mankini that would fit in with you. <laughs> There's more nipples there than I thought a man should have. Okay, so what are we doing this episode? Sean, what are we doing this episode? What are we doing? Right, we are splitting it in two halves, as we tend to do. Indeed. And the first half, we're going to go through a bunch of games that we've been playing recently, and quite quickly, there'll be hopefully quite snappy reviews, although I've got a couple of less snappy I, I said intros. snappy reviews, and you went for deep games. Yes, I did. <laughs> any, any reason anything behind that? Just what I've been playing lately, I suppose. Jolly good. Yeah, so nine of those. And then in the second half, we're going to be looking at... The Roxley releases of Brass, Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham, the changes they've made, the differences between the two games, our thoughts in general around the production and plays, our history, you'll learn a little bit about us. Not too much. Not too much. No, parole officer said, <laughs> not too much. Uh, and that's why we've got Puria in, because he's a world brass expert. Yeah, <coughs> totally. <laughs> yes. um, it was actually one of my first games I played, though. Uh, same here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll come to that. It was probably the first... I've said it before, haven't I, with the Top 50, one of the first heavy games I've played, which really made me... You know, it lights up the game apart of your brain, and you're like, oh, they can be like this. And that's where I started the deep, deep dive that I'm still <laughs> diving into. Still diving, still diving. Lovely. Have we got any other business before we crack on? And Ronan, not me, unfortunately, I've got to work. Some of us have got to pay the rent around here. I finished nights this morning. <laughs> I'm a tired man, don't push me. Ronan is off to uh, another big gaming extravaganza. Do you want to tell us more, Ronan? It's the first Tabletop Gaming Live. Tabletop uh, Gaming being a magazine that's been running for a few years in the UK. And they're having an expo at Alexandra Palace in North London. And they've very kindly invited us along. And Sean's place is going to be taken by two or three people. Those are the shoes that need filling. So Puria is going to be there with me. Yeah, I feel like with two people we might fill this shirt. <laughs> Sean's wearing one of the Not new Game Pit t-shirts. That's, that's a lot of cloth. That is a lot of cloth. Maybe, maybe this would actually fit nicely into the Nations box. <laughs> that's expansion so Puria's coming <laughs> Eleanor's definitely coming as well we'll see if we can talk Rachel into it and we might even do some sort of a, a dabble of an episode if we play enough games there uh, I've got a stag do on the Saturday night so day two is looking very shaky for my attendance <laughs> given, given that we got a roar in before the UK Games Expo yeah, that, 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 well. that wasn't a great day next be day. more professional sure <laughs> I'm very embarrassed <laughs> anyway so uh, I will be wandering around in one of our new Game Pit t-shirts we're saying pit crew across the back yes uh, on the Saturday so if you see me grab me and do things punch me yep pleasant probably it won't be because they only come apparently in 3XL and upwards <laughs> <laughs> and we could fit eight of him in there <laughs> Sean see us out in uh, out in out shake it all about as always we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to download the episodes we're on Podbean Stitcher iTunes and Spotify 
And we of course have our YouTube channel where we have our pit stop videos. Episode 115, part one, take one. Three, two, one. Don't know why I clapped. You don't need to do that. No, I don't need to clap because we're next to each other. Right here. Yeah. <laughs> Shall I just carry on? Just carry on. Okay. I might cut this bit out and leave it in. I don't know. At least leave it in. Podcasting gold. <laughs> okay. Shall I go now? Three, two, one. So, everyone, welcome to part one of episode 115. The first game we are discussing is Ruthless. It is a 2018 release coming at Essen. We're very lucky that Asmodee UK, those beautiful people, uh, lent us a copy for a little while and I've done a video which will come out um, the week before Essen I believe and they don't want it out just yet it's two to four players 60 minutes designed by Roland McDonald and from Ali Cat Games it is a pirate themed deck builder which takes five rounds to play in which you're attempting to build up the best crew and the most treasure within your deck everyone starts with a basic deck which includes powder monkeys and doubloons with the Powder Monkeys, you're going to be able to use them to thin your deck and put other cards into your Buried Pile. They're also going to be able to raid a Treasure Pile, and there's various ways of getting access to this Treasure deck during the game. And when you get a Treasure card, you either get an instant benefit and throw it away, or you make it part of your deck and you get to use it when it comes round again. So now or later effects. With the doubloons and with the treasures, you can spend any money you gain in order to purchase pirates. There's a row of pirates laid out for you to choose from. They come in numbers one to seven in five different suits, there's also face cards, the quartermaster and the captain. And there's also a parrot card, which is kind of like a wild. What you're trying to do at the end of each round, from the cards you've played from your hand and the cards you've purchased that round, is to form more or less poker hands. In that, if you have two of the same number, that's a double, that's worth four points. And in fact, at the end of the first two rounds, all you need to have done is to form at least a double, and that's going to score you a point. So the four points value of your cards will score you a point towards your victory points for the end of the game. But as you go on to rounds three, four, and five, the people who can build the strongest hands in terms of the poker hands are gonna score the most points. And you're gonna try and make triples and straights of the same number or flushes cards of the same color, etc. from there. At the end of the game, there are always two goal cards in the game and they're gonna give you points for having most cards buried, most treasure in your deck, things like that. Also, captains and quartermasters are going to score points too. Now, we haven't all played all these games, so you're going to hear a mix and match of opinions and questions. But for Ruthless, Sean and I have played it. Sean, your initial thoughts on Ruthless? My initial thoughts going into it, Roland, was uh, yet another pirate-themed game. Yet From another. you? Yeah, I know. You're the pirate boy. I'm not really. We did find you on a raft. <laughs> big, big raft. A big raft in a canal. <laughs> Wedged. Been pecked by swans. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, it just felt like another, it's another deck builder, another pirate game. So I was kind of a little bit underwhelmed. The artwork was, was nice enough. But then... Well, let me tell you what put me off initially. As soon as we're starting with putting off these. Any time a game enters a poker mechanism. Ah, see, other way. Someone's phone's on vibro. Ah. Poker. You're an idiot. Extra idiot. <laughs> How many times can I say ah and still make you like a jumping in? Ah! But ah, Ronan. The poker thing. <laughs> you gotta do that now. That's the episode I want. Wait. But see here. <laughs> I'm seeing and I'm hearing. 
But right, it's actually the poker mechanism that actually drew me to it and actually thought made me think, okay, I, I don't know, really know that many games that use the, the poker. You went for the innovation of poker, did you? <laughs> yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't really play poker myself. But it was the, the scoring. When you explained the scoring, how it all works, and it's like a bit, obviously set collection, but building up those poker hands in the scoring, it was, I found that quite interesting. And this is something actually Puri and I were talking about earlier with regards to when they use poker mechanisms in games. You had a point to make, so I'll, I'll jump on the back of you. Go on. No, it was just, uh, I don't know if it's generational or not, but anyone who's our age, I feel like, knows the poker hands inside out. But I've talked to so many younger people or just... You know, people You've who been banned from doing that, but maybe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so many other people who don't really know poker hands at all. And like, didn't Natalie? She wasn't fully au fait with poker hands. Oh, no, no, Natalie, no, Natalie was. It was me that wasn't. Oh. I was struggling with the poker hands. Natalie's played poker. That's what I thought. Cause I was telling you she's played loads mm. of traditional card games, and I was surprised. Well, but it was actually you. I must remember. Poker. It was me. Yeah. You never played poker. I played it like a couple of times, maybe online or something, and but. Those casino gambling. How much did you lose? Everything quickly. I played it in Las Vegas when I went there. Just to say, I played a hand of poker in Las Vegas. Naturally, I played Vegas, Monte Carlo, maybe. No other than that. So I was so sorry. I misremembered who didn't know the hands and. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but it is assumed knowledge, I think, was what we were getting at, that if we say you're going to score in poker hands, everyone knows what it is. And as shown here, Sean didn't. One thing they do do in the rule book really well is that they don't make it seem like a poker hand. Now, that might seem a bit silly, but they explain it in terms of victory points and they explain it in gamer terms so that you say, okay, I've got two fours, that's four points. Each other four scores me another four points. In fact, you're creating triples then and quadruples, but they don't even call it that. They just say, if you've got the same card, this is what you score. And they do the same for all of the mechanisms. And they've done that really nicely to not assume that knowledge, which comes in a lot of other games. And I would suspect maybe even just to not put people off because I could see that might be a trigger for some people. Like, yeah, absolutely. Poker hands, right. Off the yeah, list. you know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. and and so I, there are reasons there for both of us maybe to not get off on the right foot. I think also just into the game. I think this one's a quite a slow burner. You start off and you've really not got a lot to do. So the first round just whisks by really quickly, and you've not really done a lot. But by the end, it really does ramp up and it, you, you're really chaining things together. And I, I kind of like that progression in the game. It, it's, it goes really well together, that progression and pace with the game length. Yeah, And sure. one absolutely fantastic thing they've done here is they haven't tried to hang too much on the skeleton and that framework of the mechanisms. The five rounds absolutely whiz by. When you're looking at treasures in a game usually and you see it's got an immediate power or put in your deck power usually you look at it and you go, well, early in the game, I'm going to put it in my deck. And when I get towards the end, I'll take the immediate power in the last couple of rounds. In this game, from round one, it's a valid tactic to just take that immediate power because the immediate benefit you get of being able to buy a pirate, as soon as you buy a pirate, they've got powers on them and then they're in your deck and your deck cycles maybe two and a half times in the whole game, your whole deck. So it's very immediate deck building. As soon as you buy a card, you get to use it. And yeah. they've done that so well, that pacing. And like you say, really ramps up. I really love even it. more important, the card that you buy, because you're obviously, you, you need to plan when you're buying a card, rather than, right, that's going to be good for me later, like most deck builders. This one, that's going to be good for me in two, in two goes yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I need that money now will allow me to buy yeah, that yeah. card, which will set me up for this card in my hand. And you're constantly making decisions there. That sounds very similar to when I describe baseball highlights. Because you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Back to American football. Yes. That's what I was going to carry on. 
the fact that when you buy the card and the player, it's going straight into the next game. Yeah. It sounds very similar to that, both in terms of having to make the strategic choice of do I want the player in my deck overall, but also right now, is that going to help me count? It's got something? that immediacy to, to your decisions, yeah, absolutely, which, which works so well with baseball highlights. Also, I think it's somewhere where the theming helps. They've made it a pirate game. You kind of expect there to be a little bit of back and forth and a bit of luck, maybe. If it was a bit drier or a different theme, that luck of draw in the five cards available, oh, there's no threes, I'm trying to collect threes. But for some reason, because it was pirates, I kind of, the luck that's in the game, and it is there, you can draw a potato from the top of the treasure deck, or you can draw a load of gold. <laughs> I drew all the potatoes. Let's just get some Irish strokes out of the way immediately. But it didn't bother me because of the speed of the game and also I think because of the theme and it worked. And just a couple more bits, uh, begging on your theme point there. I did actually feel that theme coming through. And as you said, it did really help the game and the mechanisms within the game. And I liked that there were other ways to win. It wasn't just you had to build up those poker hands. There were other ways to win. The, the treasures helped you. Having uh, a, the captain and the... Quartermaster. Quartermaster cards, they helped you. Just buying points. those cards score yeah. your points. And in fact, to me... I think the poker scores didn't score enough because it was the main thing that was driving your choices. But in the end, you were scoring like six points, four points, two points, whatever, for the number of you have at the end of a round. Whereas two captains would score you four points. So I know they they are expensive to buy, but I felt like maybe the poker scoring could... I don't know, I didn't play test. It could have been emphasised a little bit more. My last point was on interaction, Sean. You can use your powder monkeys to punch cards out of the display so they're no longer able to be bought. You can obviously hate draft away from people. You can see they're collecting greens. You take the greens out of the display. There's interaction within there. But I did feel like it wasn't just pointless because you were sacrificing something that you wanted in order to stop someone else getting something. Yeah, you were always thinking that that step ahead, like if I am going to get rid of something or if I am going to do this, like who, who really needs it? So there, there was that interaction. It wasn't overly interactive. You weren't constantly nitpicking at each other, but there was enough in there. And so, yeah, I think to sum up, we, I really enjoyed Ruthless. Didn't go into it expecting a lot. Uh, I think what you get in there is a clever, quick card game with uh, a lot more than some of its parts, as I tend to say. Nice. For me, Ruthless, I did enjoy it very much, very fast. Decisions at every step. That fact, deck cycles so few times. Really puts pressure on you of time, but a good pressure. There's some luck, but because it's not too long, it doesn't matter. I highly recommend Ruthless, and I do suggest that if you are going to Essen or that around that time, you head off and have a look at it, because you're going to do a lot worse than this. This is a good game. My first game of the episode is going to be Wendake. I think that's how you pronounce it. There's Wendake, Wendake. I don't know. It's definitely not Wendake. <laughs> I don't care what Tom says, it's not Wendake. <laughs> and it's a 2017 release. Now, I'm the only one who, out of the three of us that's actually played this because of my ineptitude and not bringing it around to Ronan. So my apologies. But the other the guys have been looking at it and they're going to ask me a few questions. Now, Wendake has been designed by Danilo Sabia. And it comes from Placentia Games and plays one to four players. It was a game that we actually spotted in Essen last year, and it was kind of on the fringe of my Essen to playlist. Never got round to it. So what is it? It's a Wendake is the name that the Winodot people use for their traditional territory, also known as the Huron Nation. They live in the Great Lakes region in North America on the U.S. Canada border. 
it's an interesting map they've made. It doesn't look like the Great Lakes. It's a different perspective. Mm. So in the game, we are the chief of a Native American tribe around the period of 1756 to 1763. And that was the period when the Seven Year War began between the French and the English. I thought you, I thought you knew it well. And although the war plays part in the game, our main tasks are the day-to-day existence of the tribe. That's hunting, gathering, trading, and following their traditions. The main drivers of the player turns are this three-by-thread, three-grid of action tiles on the board. Each player can choose three actions, but they must form a horizontal, vertical, or diagonal line, and they flip over to show the action has been used. At the end, the players turn the bottom row of tiles are removed and the other two tiles are slid down, and the player has the choice to take an upgraded action tile to add and throw one away. They are randomly placed on the vacant top row of the grid. So that's how you choose your actions. So the the actions are, and there's lots of them here, and I apologize, you can place a canoe on the main board. You can fish, and that depends on how many canoes you have. You can move your warriors into new territories, and your gatherers into new territories. You can harvest, you can hunt, you can tan the pelts. Once you've got the beavers, you're going to turn them into leather. There's a military action where you're going to claim a turtle tile for multiple gatherers, warriors, and canoes, and claim points for each territory that you have the most guards. Uh, The mask ceremony, that's how you score the mask points. Uh, You're going to draw a mask card and, and use them in sets to get points. You can trade and exchange goods. And there's also a ritual, and this is how you get your hunters back on the board, where you score your ritual points. Now, points at the end of the game are done in a way very familiar to Knizia fans. The four scoring methods are grouped together randomly in pairs, and you take the lowest score of each pair and add them together for your final score. And that's as quick as I think I could make Wendaki, man. So you mentioned the 3x3 grid. That very much sounds like the core mechanic that the rest is built around. Is that fair? Absolutely, yeah. That's what that's what drives every move you take. Is the rest of the game interesting enough to carry that off? or There are a lot of things. So you've got the 3x3 three three grid. And apart from the fire tile, which is basically a an anything, you can use any tile so you can go out of using the actual row. Everything else is, has a different action. That's why there's so many things to do. And it's all going to come in a random form and it's going to keep randomising through the game. So you're constantly working on your toes and trying to upgrade it as you go. So, yeah, I think it is. Are any of them individually interesting or is it just the way you weave them together that brings the interest? I think they are. No, they are because some of them have multiple facets to the action. So you start doing, and like the trading allows you to sort of get a new trade tile, bring that onto your tableau. It also allows you to trade the goods that you have and then trade other goods for points. So some of them are quite multifaceted actions. Some of them are very simple, like the mask action is literally take a mask card and try and make a set of, of mask cards. Uh, there is a slight caveat to that in that if you pull, pull out a certain card, then uh, you're going to lose some of your workers on the board. There's a lot of input going in. I think you can hear by the voices that we're both a bit reluctant. Like I looked at it, and I've probably looked at it two or three times over the last year, and every time I felt like I'm not sure my input that I'm putting in is giving me enough back, that there's more thought going on and more fiddling and moving bits around than there are return for what I'm doing. The main, the main crux of the game is is obviously you're driving it through the 3x3 grid, but it's also this this combat that's constantly going on in the centre of the board. It's very interactive. 
you're constantly driving each other out of the the vacant spaces and, and back to your home territories and you've got to keep that sort of resource of people and gatherers and hunters going all the time and i think that's that's the main area you're going to focus everything else you you've got to have that to be able to focus on all the other stuff i went into the game actually not not that fast that's why it stayed on the periphery of my essence or to-do list but uh, i picked it up cheap at the uk games expo and yeah we myself and natalie we played it. it's a bit of a hard learn but once it all clicks and falls into place you can really chain things together and we, we actually quite enjoyed it you're almost persuading me <laughs> you almost got me right i was i'd made my mind up three times not to bother with it and then we saw it at ukge and you got a bit of a bargain, I think, from for Paul's getting the guru yeah. before, <laughs> before he handed over Which the reins. Amazing. Sorry, Angus, that we stole all your games for so cheap. <laughs> and I was again sniffing at it because it was cheap there, but it just, uh, you've almost persuaded me, Sean. You got one more push to do to persuade me to play this game with you. Puri's nodding his head. <laughs> it just sounds like another middleweight euro, so I'd really have to know what I think carries it across the me. line. Right, so I make think official the cut of scoring. Makes you focus on all all of the but four that main sounds areas. bad to me. But that no, sounds I'm, like then we all have to do the same but, things. But you've you've got to do four different things, and then the subsets from that are maybe like fifteen different things. And it's how you do them, and how well you chain them together, and how economical you can be, how aggressive sometimes you can be. It all that makes a difference. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. You've literally got to go out and knock everyone out of the, ga- the gathering spaces. So that you can gather yourself, and you know it's going to happen back to you as well. So because the, the, there's a massive fight for those, but I think the Knizia scoring for me just made me focus on all, all of them because I think it would be boring if you could focus on one of those areas and really rinse it, mm-hmm. and it would just be a rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But you've got to be mindful of the other areas. Now I know what's putting Puri off. Go on in. He can't do his rinse and repeat on one area. <laughs> Come through in the last two rounds and tank find, everyone. Find the, the key spot. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, it does sound like that Canadian scoring has been introduced as a fix. To make the, you explore yeah. the whole game. But, yeah, but if it and works, which, it works. Which may, may well be. I, I mean, like yourselves, I had my reservations. But what I, what I found was an initially intimidating game. But once you hit your stride, it makes sense. It's easy to follow. Very interesting action selection and a very interactive game. And I thoroughly enjoy my games of Wendake. Oh, there's a lot of varies in there as very, well. Very, yes. You very have to talk me into yes. it. Yes. Okay. I'm just saying very to try and talk you into it. Okay, very. <laughs> very much look forward to trying. <laughs> <laughs> right, moving on. And in a much more short and concise way <laughs> to Micropolis. <laughs> Sean then took Puri out of the room and thoroughly beat him. Stage notes. <laughs> Macropolis is a 2018 release designed by Bruno Cathala and Charles Chevalier, published by Matigo for two to six players, playing around 30 minutes. Over 10 rounds, players will draft and place cards into the anthill, trying to maximise their points by collecting as many ants as possible, having the largest army of ants, and collecting sets of fruits. Drafting starts with players that have the largest army, Drafting from a row of seven tiles. Players can either take the first tile or, in small world style, spend soldier ants to move further up the row. Tiles will have various configurations of tunnels that are called galleries in the games and may contain pictures of ants, special ants that either grant abilities or extra scoring potential, or particular fruit. 
After 10 rounds, the player with the most points wins. So we've all had a chance to play Micropolis at least once and with a couple of different player counts in Puria and Mines case. And there's a curious thing about Micropolis. It's up in the Essen release list. It's from known designers. It's from a, a known publisher. And I did a pit stop for it. And I know it's a, it's a short game. No one's talking about this game. No one's viewing the video about it. There's absolutely no, no buzz. I'm going to answer that for you now. Because it looks horrible. It looks crap. <laughs> language that was language <laughs> that was industrial language oh goodness me it just on the table it has zero table presence it just looks like a stain <laughs> looks like someone spilt something on the table I wrote bland but I think probably you're phrasing it better go on, keep, keep going I wrote I meh, meh. <laughs> just I, for the looks I think it, I think that's what it boils down to I think it's quite hard to see the individual ants on the board I think maybe the fruit stand out, but everything else... And the paths stand out, but the individual ants do not. They're not paths, they're called galleries. But you wouldn't know that from the rulebook, because <laughs> it never tells you what they're called, despite referring to them constantly. You can kind of work out, right, that ants, tunnels are called galleries, but it's a rulebook that's four pages long, and it doesn't have all the rules in it. That is... Mm. And to be fair, that should be one of the positives because it's quick to teach if you're not teaching from the rule book. Um, but <laughs> beyond you're teaching from the hive mind. mind. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't really see why it elevates beyond any other game that's got drafting in it, tile placement. Those elements are there, but they're all mediocre at best. Yeah, I put down that very familiar mechanisms and it's not really delivering anything new. But what it did stand out to me as is definitely not just a gateway game, but a gateway game for almost like your first game. It's going to teach you that set collection and a pattern building and route building. And so simply, it, that's what it stands out. Or an end of the night game, as we, we tend to say, the, one of those games that you're just winding down, you're not really concentrating. I don't see it as an end of the game no. night because it hasn't got a little the little hiccup or catch that a gamer wants. Like, we're going to talk about maybe a game later on that fits that a bit better. But in this one, it's all so standard. I think you've absolutely nailed it with, like, a beginner game or a kid's game, even. But even no? a beginner's game, because the whole point, as we always talk about, is when you introduce games to people who don't play games, is you want that little bit of something where they go, ooh. Yeah, but this has got it. It's just not to us. Oh, it had, like, drafting? Where do you, if you haven't played hobby games, yeah. even the idea of a draft, the idea that you control your own thing, that... And I think it's an illusion of choice, but there is an illusion of choice that I will go down a certain path to score my... It's like a gateway to boredom. It's, uh, yes, it teaches you... It's, it's like literally a tutorial for drafting. It, but. Yeah, it's a stepping stone. You step, and then the next one, Seven Wonders, and then we can start playing... But it's the why not just, of the choice. Seven Wonders is harder than you think. <laughs> and this is something I've been hanged on about for five years. Uh, seven Wonders is not a beginner's game, sure. It's not. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that illusion of choice that's there, but you, it, you can see why you're doing it. And it's so obvious. You can see why you're taking every step. And you can see, like, yeah, to us, it's like, God, why wouldn't I do that? But to someone brand new to games, they say, okay, so I'm taking that because I want to extend the fruit. What's the, what are they called? Galleries. The fruit. But you wouldn't know that from the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might. You want to extend the, the fruit on your, on your gallery or you want to extend how much the tiles the queen influences and it's very simple and we see it immediately and we get a little bit bored by the end but other people who are new to games will see why they're doing it right and how are those new people going to find it because they're not going to pick it up in a shop because it looks crap we're not going to buy it just to have as a newbie game to introduce people so 
That's because we're miserable and we don't go to LOB and teach games. But a few years ago, when you're going to LOB and would play anything and were two or three years into the hobby, you would buy this to play with new players, to get them around the table, to make them comfortable and then lead them on into other games. I think I bought plenty of games like this in order to just... I don't disagree with you, but I think there are better games that do that. Well, I didn't say it was the best one. one. One of the things I want to say, but I mentioned brushing it, the illusion of choice. The economy to give you choice of tiles is all based on those soldier ants. The whole economy is too tight. Everyone starts with five soldiers. There's a method of scoring whereby if you draft a barracks tile, you put soldiers on there. The only way soldiers come into that closed economy are via nurse tiles, but they are quite few and far between. And I believe, in fact I'm certain, there are more spaces in barracks than there are nurses bringing them in. So the economy shrinks as the game goes on, which feels really strange. Because when you get to the point where you might want to fire out some soldier ants and and take a gamble and pay six because I really need that seventh tile, in effect... Everyone is drafting from the first three tiles. Uh, there's an architect you can get, which is a token which allows you to take, there's two of them in the game, if they come up, it takes you any tile for, for no cost. But the whole economy just doesn't work. It doesn't exist. You're not spending lots of soldiers. You rarely have them. If you've got them, you're going to put them in barracks because they immediately score you points. And that economy had to loosen up. And I think then there'd be a little bit more to the game. Not a lot more, but at least you would genuinely be choosing from more than a couple of tiles. I also think that's exacerbated by the fact that when you take the tile, you put it on the left or the right, which means you have two places to put it. Unlike a grid game where you could put it in multiple places, you have a choice of A or B. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that might help if you're young or if you're new. I can see that actually for a new player, and we're talking about a brand new player, being quite an interesting thing of going, oh, I might have to close that gallery off, I didn't realise, or oh, I can't extend my fruit because I've chosen this one. But it is very basic. Very bad, I think choice. my son, who's six, I don't think he's that far off from, from being able to play this. And it could be a good kid's game. Let's play him now for money while we can. <laughs> <laughs> we need to sum up on Micropolis, so I'm just going to kick off and we'll, we'll go around the room. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different comments coming in here. It's light. It takes less than half an hour. I didn't hate my time with it. It was, it was okay. I quite enjoyed it. I like the theme. But I'm not going to keep it. And I was the person who bought it. It just doesn't do enough. Different, to be honest with you. So, uh, give it a go if it's offered to you. I mean, he's quick. So, for, yeah, for me, it's a game that I didn't begrudge playing. Perfectly happy during the game. There was a lot of banter. And maybe it's one of those games where you have to sort of almost generate your own fun. It's for us, but as I said, because we are experienced gamers. By beatboxing and rapping. Yeah, smoke. by beatboxing, rapping, <laughs> generally annoying everyone else. Pete Doggy Dog. Speaking of Pete Doggy Pete Doggy Dog. I am on the grumpier side of this. I don't think it does enough even to play again. I'm. Not convinced. You're out. Two and out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. I'm fair I'm enough. enough. You're, You're not, not P dogs getting for Christmas. <laughs> Three copies of Micropolis. <laughs> All right, that's us done with Micropolis. We shall crack on in a sec. I'm not going to clap this time. Is everyone ready to go? You're an idiot. <laughs> so our fourth game. <laughs> Here's Game of Thrones Catan. This is from Klaus and Benjamin Teuber, the famous Catan designers. It's published by Fantasy Flight Games. It's for three to four players. Allegedly 75 minutes. There's very varied playtime I'm going to put on this, depending on how well it goes. It's from 2017. It is Catan. 
I'm going to make some assumptions that you know how Catan works here. Apologies if you don't. There's a grid, there's different uh, terrains. You roll two dice, whatever number they come up with, those terrains are going to produce resources. You can use those resources to build roads and build settlements and buy cards and generally try and be the first to score 10 points. Only there are differences because it's Game of Thrones Catan. Firstly, the robber is called Tormund, and that just makes me happy, so that's why I said it. He's going to go and have giant children. Maybe with Sean. <laughs> I talk about daddy like that. <laughs> He's your daddy. Also, each player begins the game with a leader, which can give you a special power, allow you to get access to resources or do something to affect what's going on in the game. You're playing as the Night's Watch, by the way. I probably should have explained that. And you're looking to man the wall against the, uh, the charges of the wildlings. You're looking to protect the gift. So uh, these leaders are going to help you some way, either in standard Catan way with your economy and resources or in your battle to protect the gift from the wildlings. And when you use leaders, you can swap them around and there's about 10 or 12 of them in the game and you can choose when and where to use them. One of the things you can build, which is not standard for Catan, is you can build guards. Now, the, the wall itself is split into four sections, and there are wildlings that will be threatening those four sections. And you can spend some of your resources to build guards, and you choose which of the four sections they go on. And they are going to score you points if you have three or five of them, one or two points at least in play. And also... When players build settlements and keeps, which are the level one and level two uh, uh, things you can build along your roads, that is going to release wildlings from the frost fangs out into beyond the wall. And then a wildling die comes into play. There are three different clans of wildlings and they go to different camps, three different camps. And then once they are in play, you roll the wildling die with the two base dice, Catan dice. And then they're going to trigger sometimes wildlings to move into the area next to the wall. And if you don't have enough guards you're going to be in trouble now i said there are three different types the normal wildlings will gather in numbers and if there are more wildlings at one of the sections of the wall than there are guards and they will overwhelm the wall they'll kill one guard if there are any there and then they will move into the areas directly to the south of that area of the wall and they will block much as the robber does block terrains they will block terrains and if three go over there'll be three terrains blocked so it is of interest to you if you're in certain areas to protect certain parts of the wall. The other two types are, there are climbers. Now, they won't worry about guards on the wall. When they get to the front of the thing, they will just hop over and start blocking areas. Now, the thing is, this is one of the ways in which the game can end. Because every time the normal wildlings come over the wall, that's called a wildling invasion. If that happens three times, then it is a bitter victory. And whoever has got the most guards still in play is going to win. And also with these climbers and with these uh, wildling, wildlings overwhelming the walls, if ever you have eight or more wildlings in the gift, that also is going to end the game. And whoever's got the most guards in play is going to have won the game at that stage. The last type of wilding is called a giant, and when a giant gets to the front of the queue, they will pluck a guard from the wall, as long as there are any guards, and then they will go back to the frost frangs, presumably chewing on the guards' body parts. If you do manage to keep the guards intact and the wildlings do not make it into all those attacks into the gift, then it will be the first to 10 points as with standard Catan will win the game. And you're going to score those points, like I said, by having guards, by buying cards, by having the longest road, by having the biggest patrol, by playing patrol cards, which kick wildlings out of the gift back into the frost fangs, and by building your, your keeps and your settlements, which will score you two and one point. It is Catan. It has got a twist. It is an attempt at being thematic on a very very popular themes we all know 
Puria and I have played it. So Puria, first thoughts. It is Catan. It is. But I have to say, in terms of integrating the theme, it does a much better job than I've seen from other Catans. The gift in terms of resource production makes sense. Makes much more sense than Space Catan and all that nonsense. I actually really like that tension you get between those people who are investing lots of resources into getting to 10 points versus those who've invested points in terms of defending the wall and who may leave segments open to try and end the game. And in our game, that created a genuine tension for several rounds where we were a die roll away from losing the game. (laughs) And I was trying to clamour as quickly as I could because I was ahead in points to close that off. Yeah, so off the... Four sections of the wall in the game he's talking about. Three of them were fully guarded and one was completely wide open. And at various points, either myself or another player had the most guards in play. And we just needed one wildling. And they were sitting in the camps ready to attack. One wildling to go in. And that die must have been rolled 35 times. And we didn't get the four we needed in order for the wildling to hop over, end the game, and one of the two of us would have won. Instead, Puria managed to get his guards built up and... (laughs) and one. The thing. Sorry, I, I didn't hear you, Ronnie. And one. <laughs> the thing with that tension, and I really loved it, but it was front loaded in the game. And what happened when it became a threat was people started building guards, which meant they didn't build settlements and keeps, which meant fewer wildlings came in. So while we were getting our defences up, the threat itself was less. I kind of wish that there were wildlings coming in via another mechanism. Maybe every time you built a guard, a wildling came in, or that would, that would be hard. But there was some other way wildlings were coming into play because people just stopped building keeps of settlements and went, whoa, we're too close to... Do-. And then because the sections were built up, there was no point for us to build guards anymore because we wanted that one open. So I'd say the first hour and a half were really tense and it was really backwards forwards. And then once the, the wall was fully guarded, it just got into Catan, in which well, I was blocked off because I played for the guard strategy, so then I was like, well, I know I'm not going to win. But Rachel was playing with us. She had bad luck with die rolls, really bad luck, plus we kept picking on her. So um, so she was out of it. So basically, there's only two players left in the game then, which is a sort of a thing that can happen with Catan. In a two-hour version, though, yeah. because you've had that, that digression, it, you know, it was, there was positives and there were negatives to that, to that side which, of the wall. Maybe just goes back to the point, it is still Catan. Because a lot of the additions, I think, make it better. The leaders... Oh, yeah, leaders were coming up, yeah. Especially, the choice (laughs) isn't just arbitrary. Because if you pick a leader and you've picked poorly, you might just be stuck with that leader. Because you have to usually... If you use it once, you get a choice to swap it in for another leader. When you use it a second time, it must be swapped. But if you use it that once that you need it, and then you choose, no, I think I'll keep hold of it. The next die roll can make you go, oh! I should have swapped. I really need another one. Puri's put in phases here of tension. and <laughs> I think this may actually be much better refresh for a new generation of gamers who are going to go into a shop like Forbidden Planet, which is our very large comic sh- uh, shop here in London. Look and see that on the shelves. See the two things together, Game yeah. of Thrones and Catan. Or even maybe just see Game of Thrones. Because mm-hmm. they'll go, oh, that looks fun. And they'll pick that up. And I'd rather they pick that up then half a dozen other games. Like Micropolis. Like Micropolis. <laughs> <laughs> One of the problems with it is, though, it's a two-rule book system, and it's a bad... In fact, it's kind of a three-rule book system. And what it never does is just give you the rules in one go. It says, here's base Catan rules, which you can play with the set. Here's the additions. 
for Game of Thrones, and then here's some other extra rules in our reference book, and there's no one rule book for newbies to go, all right, here you go, this is how you set it up, this is how you play, this is the progression. So it, I found it tricky referencing rules. So for that newer market, they're aiming that, and it is really expensive as well. So maybe that opens the question if it actually has a target audience. Well, I think the target is is Game of Thrones fans, right, from the TV and what have you, and, and the massive audience there. Well, that was going to be sort of one of the questions I was going to ask you guys. Is it is it for gamers or Game of Thrones fans? It's for the for the huge part of the Venn diagram that's in between, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an awful lot of people that play board games that don't own three or four hundred like like we all do. You know, ninety five percent of people who play games don't aren't as into it as we are, and then probably ninety five percent of people who like Game of Thrones. Don't know as much as Sean and I do about it, and haven't been part of the official fan club, and haven't been knighted by George R. R. Martin and all the rest of it. I get too sad here. We're like the, op- <laughs> the complete opposite of this Venn diagram. To that point, anyone who's into hobby games would probably steer to what? Game of Thrones, a board game. Ooh, if you want to spend six hours hating each other. No, but I mean that. I can see it's been replaced by other games, but it genuinely did have... Oh, it's a really good game. Yeah. Really and good game. And has an excellent implementation of the theme. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the circle in terms of Game of Thrones fans and slightly new to the hobby fans mm-hmm. is slightly smaller than you think. You think? I mean, we've got lots of friends who are gamers and they, they'll ask us about games and you'll say stuff that you think is obvious and they'll be... I've never heard of that. I've never, you know. But this one, it feels like to me, it's, it's a perfect Waterstones game. Because yeah, uh, Catan is quite, uh, is the, probably one of the most famous. Barnes and Noble, if you're in the US. <laughs> German <laughs> version for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a big bookshop will stock a certain amount of like the more popular games. And obviously, because Game of Thrones is from the book series, it's going to. Is there a book series? There is. <laughs> <laughs> And it's gonna it's gonna tie in there, and I think it's the perfect game to sit in a, uh, one of the major bookshops. And I think for that reason, it will see a bigger right, audience. The problem with that is it's ninety pounds. I was gonna move my next question. Is it an accessible game, or is it strictly for the collector? I mean, it's not nice enough for a collector. It's got nice bits. It is visually appealing. You get your own. There's loads of plastic. There's little figures. There's loads of wildlings. Turn the box over, you've got that really big, chunky piece of wall you can look at. Yeah, it's it's nice components. I got it as a birthday present because I wouldn't pay the 90 quid. And Rachel, we were out, we were up in Wales, and Rachel said, what would you want for your birthday? And I was like, oh, look, I would never buy that for myself. That would be a great present. Is it too soon to tell you it was for 60-something pounds? and It was 73 she paid, so... Um, so I, you know, I've, in terms of Catan, by the way, I actually think that they've used the Catan system really well other times as well. The one I was talking about is uh, Settlers of America, because you start on the East Coast and you have to work west, and it forces you to progress across. You can only go a certain way, and you have to build trails to rail. So you start by building wagon trains, and then you have to build railways, which are more expensive. And I think, and I think they've done some real nice thematic things like that. Struggle for Rome, but those are Catan themes in terms of history they're not here's an IP like Star Trek or Game of Thrones I think the Star Trek theme just doesn't really make as much sense in terms of resource production going what I'm randomly rolling dice in my 
planet nebula or planets. <laughs> yeah, no, I take your point, and I think they have thematically made a very nice tie. Rather than trying to turn Catan into a whole, the whole of Westeros and the, all of the intrigue, just picked a certain part of the story and said, "Here we go. This will work." That, that, uh, and, and it does make sense, and it, you know. So, um, I was wondering whether you wanted to touch on your on your deck of cards idea that you just keep banging on about for Catan and the die rolling. It's a fairly standard thing for is experience. It? it is for Catan <laughs> players who prefer a stacked deck with all the numbers rather than using die, which means. On average, through the game, everything will pay out. So the probabilities are fixed. There's like A2 in the deck, but there's four, fives, yeah. or whatever it might be. Because it's not fun being that's, that's Rachel's position. Going too far. It's If you're it's, really into Catan, you're not going to enjoy... That's removing the game. fun of Catan, of the dice roll again. <laughs> yeah, it's fun when you're on the winning <laughs> side. It's not so fun when you're on the losing side. Only one person in four can be the worst luck. <laughs> Sean, have you got any more questions for us? Not really. You know, I've played Catan once or twice. Uh, it's never been one of my favourite games, but the Game of Thrones IP actually made me want to have a look at it. And obviously, the collector in me wants wants the pretty, but I don't think there's enough. Off to the priory with you, <laughs> off for more counselling. Puria, sum up on Game of Thrones Catan. I think it's, it's actually got a longer name, that, hasn't it? It's in front of me. Game of Thrones Catan, Brotherhood of the Watch. I should probably mention it once. Which is good, because it's got a big box, so it has room for that. <laughs> there might be other Game of Thrones contents, I imagine, coming. Mother of Dragons, and even the Veil making Arbor Red. And... I'd be really surprised if they do an expansion series. Well, more Game of Thrones themes. If that sold tens of thousands... Oh, though, of course yeah. No, I'd be surprised if they do expansions... Oh no, to not to that one. Yeah. No, I mean like it's called Brother of the Watch. There might be another one. Interestingly called... enough, the Game of Thrones, the board game, has just had a expansion announced. Yes, so yes. Mother of Dragons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Danny oh, themed. <laughs> Down. <laughs> you haven't summed up on the game. You're too busy thinking about Media Clark. <laughs> Speak. Right. Uh, it is Catan. I think it has its place. As we're saying, it's the kind of game that's going to do well in Target, Waterstones, for Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble <laughs> for American friends. Those people who have enough attraction to the theme and are into the hobby for three to four years. That's a very specific time frame. Very specific. Three Five years, years, you're out. <laughs> two years, you're, you're not ready for this. You're not you're ready, ready for this. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, this is now Puria and I and our friends have Christmas games. Right, where they're not the best games in the world, but they're games that have some sort of hook for yourself that you want to play. I try and make them play Middle Earth Quest most years at Christmas when I'm around. For <laughs> its it's eyebrows. It's it's really good, but it's also a bit rubbish. But it's really good. I've half a bottle of gin and I'm all there. Exactly. <laughs> Baby Rob Puri is cooking dinner for us. Anyway, this Game of Thrones Catan, I think, is just going to become a Christmas game for me. Uh, I love the theme. Obviously, we've harped on about that endlessly. It's got familiar mechanisms. There are really nice story touches, even to the fact that the leaders actually feel thematic to the role that they play in the books. So the, the lead steward will give you more resources. Someone will let you swap things around. But someone like Alistair Thorne, who was the head of training, right? He, he gets your extra guards. And they really do make sense. Like Benji Stark helps you patrol, all the rest of it, whatever. I think it needs a way for the Wildlings to continually ramp up. Uh, maybe we just didn't draw giants or whatever that would pluck guards off there. But once we had 20 guards out, that was set. Okay, it's quite late in the game, but then the best part of the game was removed for the end of it. So th- that's really my only problem with it. Other than that, it's it's a better version of Catan for me with a better theme. So I quite liked it, but I'm not going to play it all the time. 
that was Game of Thrones Catan. Okay, so next up for me is another long game and another game that I struggled to describe. So apologies. <laughs> <laughs> it's Noria, the 2017 release from Sophia Wagner, coming from uh, Pegasus Spiel, Stronghold, among others, and playing two to four players. Noria is a flying land that has a flourishing trade empire and players have to guide it towards more and more prosperity. We do this by discovering flying islands, buying ships, building factories and investing in prestigious projects. So on the table you have a main board and on this main board you have a game timer, you've got a market, you've got a scoring track and places to influence those scoring tracks which are the only way to score in this game. Players have an action wheel consisting of three rings in decreasing size from the bottom up and also on the table there are action discs, resources, ships, player boards and the player boards have the factories on them. So I want to specifically talk about the action wheel. This is the thing that drives the action selection and I think it needs a special description. At the end of your turn you will always move each ring by a set amount. This will move your action discs that are set into the rings. Players are now going to have a choice of actions by choosing actions that are now in a line and not broken by an empty space, but only using one action per ring. Players have the opportunity to add and upgrade the action disc as the game progresses and will be able to tailor the wheel to make the most of their turns or not. During the turn, your first thing you can do is, is influence. And this is where you get to pay knowledge. Now, knowledge is one of the resources in the game. And you're going to pay knowledge to either move the rings or swap your action discs. Then you move into the action phase. And this is where you use your aligned action discs for their unique power. You can gather basic resources. You can do a city action, which is to take another action disc and then advance one of your four scoring tracks that are on the city board by paying the required resources. You can journey, you can draw an island tile and move to that island and either buy a ship to increase your resource production or place a city from your player board and earn more knowledge. This also allows you to access more complex goods. You have a tool action and this is where you upgrade your action discs to get double actions and you can make complex goods. And then you've got a bonus which simply adds an extra action to the disc. You move on to the politics, and this is where you're going to increase the points amount for each level you move up on certain tracks. Then you do the admin, which is rotating your wheel. The aim of the game is to use your actions to produce the resources to move up the tracks and to make the tracks as profitable for you as possible. As I said, the score is calculated solely from the tracks, and the highest score is the winner. Poria, Noria, how did you find it? I tried Noria in Essen last year. And as always, it was buzzy, right? Very buzzy. In very buzzy. I was lining up for Altiplano, sorry to get in, and the line was right next to the Noria line on the Thursday. Noria line was 10 times longer. And it's really going to be that central mechanic mm -hmm. that draws you in. You've got something very novel. I have some concerns about it, but I'll come back to that. And in my personal opinion, it's one of those games that's been designed around something where everything else is tacked on to make that central mechanism do something useful. It's a very, very bland Euro game, in my opinion. I think some it. of the buzz was because it was a, it was a competition winner, wasn't she? It, yeah, it won a competition. But because, it, I think... Yeah, the, yeah the definitely wheel, the wheel is the thing that everyone... Probably the most innovative thing they saw that day, right? When they were judging, you go, oh, this is different to 
that eighth worker placement game we so played. So let's start off on the wheel, shall we? So yes, it's it's fairly innovative. Uh, we've seen sort of rotating things on games like Zolkin before, but this one. Can we have to talk about Zolkin? You love Why it. Why always Zolkin? <laughs> they made me play it the other night. Good, good. And how how did it. I do? You oh. <laughs> more than doubled my score. Because <laughs> you are a buffoon. That's true. So yeah, it looks great. Functionally. After a round or two, I think that novelty wore off and functionally it just became an irritant for me. It's actually really hard because you're supposed to do everything that lines up, but it doesn't line up very well. The, the actions definitely don't line up, do they? They just do higgledy-piggledy all You two have been agreeing about this all day and I just don't even know what you're talking about. It's perfectly clear. You just go from the second bottom half, choose one of three starting spaces and then smooth. wiggle through. Yeah, it's not smooth. There's, there's very few, like, there's only so far you can go. There's no that. clear delineation of, like, where you stop the There's line. literally, like, six possible choices. And you start at one, two, or three, and you go, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, that's it. I was it's not the only person who sat there going, wait a minute, does that now, Do can I do this or not? We had lots of rules questions where it wasn't apparent to everyone exactly what, and the rules didn't help. The rules explanation needed to be reinforced again and again, going, no, you can do this. The rule book isn't great. Like, it, yeah. it isn't great, and it doesn't explain that very well. And it doesn't explain how much you turn each each wheel. Each individual disc and okay, the, so the turning thing, like how far to turn each one, how far to turn each one of the one of the things because it wasn't there's no clear delineation. But once you got it, it's just like you follow the yeah, disc. Yeah, like then go. Even though it wasn't that hard, once you knew the game, how to decipher what your what your actions were, just the fact that they didn't line up, it irritated me. I didn't even notice they didn't line up. My my issue with the wheel is not the functionality in that. It's that it becomes far too flexible once you get into the game a bit. And especially once you wrap your, ramp your cog production up. That was hard to say and not swear. Ramp, knowledge. Ramp knowledge. your cog production. Knowledge. Knowledge. Is that knowledge. What it's called? That's okay. what it is. Yeah, ramp your knowledge production <laughs> up. The rain inspect... Anyway. Okay, I've thrown myself off by quoting my fellow. Once you ramp up your knowledge production by getting those factories out, you have enough cogs then to swap a disc around each turn. And that completely removes the need for the wheel, right? I just didn't care because I could almost always do what I wanted to do or at least close to. And in fact, in the first half of the game where maybe I couldn't swap them around as much, I still felt like my choices were obvious in terms of upgrade my wheel and just get as many resources as I can because I'm going to be able to use them somewhere because they can all almost be handed in. And then once I start seeing how the points develops, then I go, right, that's going to score most points. I'm going to hammer that. I've got those resources anyway. It didn't make any difference to me. So it was both fiddly and wide open by the end of the game. It wasn't even a restriction on my actions. Because really, really. it's, it's specifically designed, or should be, around constraints that's right. in terms of programming. But everything around the game then takes away from Mitigated, that. yeah. 100%. And I think we're getting to the nitty-gritty of it here, is that... Uh, there isn't a wide selection of choices. I think there is a correct way of playing this game and there is an incorrect way of playing this game and I don't think there isn't too much variance on that. And, and that's, that was my main problem. Specialise. What you're saying yeah. is you need to specialise, yeah. right? You need to go, I'm going to ramp up this particular product, I'm going to smash the score up as high as I can and then everyone else needs to jump on that same thing because if I'm scoring 12 for every one mm-hmm. of those, everyone's going to go great because that first half of the game is just, you know, getting yourself ready and everyone's really in the position to strike then. It's, no one's really, uh, I'm trying to, on a podcast, I'm trying to hard, find it hard to word this. Don't generalise, 
but generalize for the first half. And then once the pattern is established of scoring, then we all know exactly what we're striking for. How did so, you feel about that scoring? In the end, all the effort that went into it didn't feel worth it. And the, and the fact that you not only increase your, the something that you want to increase on the score track, act, you activate without having to work for it, taking away from somebody that's else's right, score yeah, track. That's right, yeah, yeah. So, it was so obvious. It was like, there was no thought involved No, in that's that. right. I'm on this track, therefore I want that to score more. You're on that track, therefore I want that to score less. There's no thought in that. And, so, and the higher and lower score bits as well, where you, where you score for yeah. your highest up dobber and your lowest dobber. It just you're never going to score for your lowest double because you're not going to score in all the different areas because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So that was also an illusion of choice that was, was worth That felt like an afterthought to me. And so what you're saying is that through that scoring mechanism, it just pushes everyone down the same alley and you end up all playing the same game, more or less. Do you think it's a question of having pushed out or done just enough development on the game to get that core... Mechanism, which was genuinely novel mm-hmm. to the extent that, as you were saying, there's long queues, everyone wanted to see it. But in terms of designing the game around it, I feel like they've just done just enough to make it a game and say, look, look at this great wheel. It felt like a game that you'd hand in to a decent developer, publisher, and say, here's what, and they go, do you know what? You've got 70% of a great game there. Here's your game back in six months. These are the bits we added onto it, and now we've turned that wheel into a game. Yeah, you've done most of it, but it's not fully developed. So it felt like a competition winning game to me because that's what a lot of those feel like. Like it's something that you've banged up, uh, you're trying to get it out for a competition. That's not to say there's not a lot of thought gone into it and it's balanced and it works well. It needed developing to find the game. It was interesting, there were mechanisms, you were doing stuff, stuff was moving around. Well, it didn't have the hook of actually, this is fun and it's challenging and we care what everyone else is doing. I didn't, literally didn't care what anyone else was doing at the table. Oh no, absolutely. There's, there's no interaction and what interaction is there is on those scoring track and that is forced and obvious. Yeah. The ones that's committed, you're, yeah. well, that's it. Should be committed. <laughs> hey. So, Puria, do you want to sum up for us on Noria? I feel like it's going to be glowing terms. Glowing. Glowing bright hot pile of fun. No. Um, <laughs> it's... If your piles are glowing <laughs> bright hot... I don't know where you were going to end up doing that. I'm really looking forward to see the next design because I think there's some real promise in terms of the novelty that came out of that uh, very young designer. I think, and I hope that next time... Something as novel as that is better developed. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, I'll look forward to trying it. But as far as Nora is concerned, out the door. So for me, every game was exactly the same. I played this a few times. I tried to play it a different, different way. But the person who did the correct thing won every single time. I think the lack of interaction... The, the clunkiness of the main attraction to the game just turned me off it. And the, although the design is very clever, the one thing it actually lacks is fun. And that's why I got into board gaming, is to have fun. So I'm not going to be playing this one again. Do you know the one thing I'm upset by? You didn't even thank me for the lesson I gave you. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting attempt at the wheel but it was mitigated to blandness and that you could do too much on the wheel. You didn't feel restricted. It attached itself to a dull VP scoring exercise, which goes up a one-way street. 
and I'm just going to, you know, put a Stolix on it and sum up first. I really shouldn't have done that. It needed development to find the game itself. <laughs> Stop writing notes down as I speak. So Noria was a miss around here, a trap to use a word we don't use in this format. But anyway. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> I think it's time to turn the wheel to our next game. Oh, let's step forward. <laughs> our next game is Shikoku, a 2018 release by Eduard Poharis, and I apologise for the pronunciation because I'm sure it's wrong, published by GDM Games for 3 to 8 players, taking about 30 to 40 minutes. The game will be released this Essen. Shikoku is the smallest of four main islands of Japan, famous for its 88 Buddhist temples. In this game particularly, we are pilgrims who are going up the 33 steps of one of the famous temples. It is said people have a year of misfortune and woes at the age of 42 for men and 33 for women. So to be cured and avoid bad luck, pilgrims of those ages attend the temple, making their way up the steps, leaving a coin behind while singing mantras. The game is played over several rounds in which players will play cards that move them up the temple steps, draft new cards into their hand, and set turn order for the next round. Once a player reaches the final step, the game is over. As in life, extremism is punished, with the players that are last or first being excluded from the win. You're basically trying to either be second or second to last, and that will vary with player count. So it is obviously a very simple game, uh, in every step, what you can do is limited to keep the pace of the game up. You're choosing from three cards in your hand. You're drafting from however many cards there are players with that number reducing. But there is control there. And one of the interesting things is that the pool of cards in the game is always known, uh, apart from one card each round. So uh, if you can card count, you've got a lot of control over what's going on in the game. Even if you're not card counting... It's not a complete chaos because there's 33 cards in the game. It could get a bit wild. You do get a feeling for what's gone into players' hands and what might come out. And you can, to some degree, attempt to control how much you move, especially more at player count, at lower player counts. Yeah, and just to emphasise for the listeners, the deck represents the 33 steps. So it goes from 1 to 33. And in terms of hand management, I think that's one of the core skills in terms of controlling some of that randomness so if i have the 33 i know that when i place that into the lineup i will have my card be last so a lot of for us at least a lot of the strategy came around making sure we're picking up the right cards during the round to make sure that when you get to that end phase where we're approaching the last step you've got the right card to play i you you can build on that as well though because you can see that let's say puria drafted the 33 and I've got the 31 in my hand, and Puria's lagging behind and he wants to move, that might be the time for me to play the 31 if I don't want to move because his card will be higher. So I'll be second last, more than likely, unless the 32 gets played, which, you know, but so then I can burn the 31 and not move if I don't want to. Or conversely, if I do want to move, I wait for him to play the 33 because then it'll be out of the game for one round, and then the 31's a pretty safe card to play getting me to move and there's that there's that little bit there of 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 thinking and managing and it it can kind of also go to another level so for example if you get stuck burning off and getting into the lead you start taking cards with very few sandals on and then suddenly you'll find yourself dropping way behind because it 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 moves along really at a clip you're dropping behind you look in your hand you've only got one or two sandal cards in your hand and you're like you're four behind everyone else i can't be last i'm going to lose again and then you're trying to manage your hand back up to more sandals 
which brings you into the gold zone with loads of sandals. You know, and you're constantly trying to have options, but mitigating both the numbers and the number of sandals. Now, we're talking about having options and lots of death and hand management. It's a really, really light, quick game. Sean, you've played it with us as well. One thing I just wanted to ask you guys really was uh, the player count. Now, you guys have played with a higher playing count than I have. I've played with three players, which we had concerns about, but I actually thought actually worked very well because I felt that maybe with a higher know, player we count... We had different opinions. I'm not sure there's fully concern. Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, As in, Puri felt... was wrong. We can pick him <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad play count. It's different. So yeah, I felt like maybe with more players it would be more chaotic and that we'd have more control with three players because you'd have a better feeling for what each of the players has in their hand and you can play a, a more sort of educated card play rather than the five player or the whatever it goes up to. It goes up to eight. Eight players, yeah. At that stage, you, I don't think you're really going to be understanding what cards everyone's got unless you're a, a savant or something. I enjoyed it at three players and I enjoyed the control in a game that I didn't think there was going to be any control. I didn't say it was bad at three. I think for me it's just a very different game. At the higher play count, it's a great, all get a random number of players, quick filler, hilarious fun, oh look how funny that was kind of game. With the lower play counts, it's actually a lot more strategic than that. It's still a little random, but it's not the funny kind of game it is at the higher play counts because you don't have that random movement where you go like, ah oh, crap, I can't believe you did that. I'm just going to echo, but I, li- I like them both. But in the higher play count, there was a lot more laughing. And there was a lot of like laughter and joking and people abusing each other. And suddenly someone would pull a 21 out and it would be between the 20 and the 22. And those two players were like, oh, no, suddenly. And you had to be a bit wilder in your actions. You had to swing a bit more. When we played three-player, you were always kind of nibbling at each other. You were like, well, I'm not sure I want a six-sandal or a one-sandal because I just want to roll along. But the, the slight problem we had with the higher player count, now it, I think it was funnier, it was lighter, it was more an end-of-night game. With three players, I thought it was more a decent filler. You, and it took 10 minutes to play, right? Yeah. Uh, the, 10 minutes, and then you're constantly going, there's constantly things to do. You're playing, you're drafting, you're playing, you're drafting. It's all moving along a real clip. What the slight problem we had with higher player counts was the end was a bit fudgy in that a lot of players ended up on the last or second to last step and some of them had to move and because you're playing your cards face up the last player king winked he was like well you're going to win or you're going to win mm-hmm. and more than one player can win in higher player counts if you're if you're second and you're all second on the same step you're all second and you all win and he was faced with that very last card of that game of oh oh I can play this one and, and Puri wins or I can play this one and Ronan wins and that was the only bum note I've had in the games of it. I had a slight concern at both ends of the spectrum, only to the extent that at the beginning of the game, I'm not that interested or vested in what I'm doing. The first couple of steps did make. But you're building your hand for the middle part. I am, but there's no excitement in the like. It's not funny. It's not. It took a. If you remember, with even the higher player, it took a while to get to that interesting stuff where people go. But that's because you were always around the middle. The people who were stuck out front or stuck behind they were interested yeah. okay. and the interest came from so for example um, I think it was Rachel again which seems like we're always picking on Rachel she was left behind it originally and then we started drafting all the high movement cards from her 
So that she was left with the one or two standard one, thinking, well, if she's dead last, then guaranteed that you know there's a better chance for the rest of us. The problem came then, you're all stuck with high sandal cards in your hand in the middle part. So suddenly you're all racing ahead, and then you've got to throw them back in, and she was able to pick them up and catch right up with us when we thought she was out of the game. So I think that, you know, the hand management was still going on at that beginning part. And in all honesty, it's so short that... I don't really think it's... You're talking about four minutes of play that's a bit slower than the rest Um, of it. I did have more concerns around the end game, like you said. That last, very, very last hand kind of took away a little bit from... Yeah, is it a case of... I I don't know. I I couldn't think of an obvious solution, but if you're in that goal zone, if you're in the goal zone, you're within six steps of the end, it shows you you can finish on this turn. Do do you play your card face down, but then there's that too little control then, or would it be funnier where you just flip them over and go? Or play simultaneous to begin. We shouldn't be fixing that. It's just a little bit of distraction yeah, from the last think, card. I think we've, we've done this one. It's a 10 minute game. I think we, yeah, we, we, we talked about it for to summer. 40. Yeah. <laughs> In which case, it was more than just light fluff. It was funny to watch the shifting alliances in the game again, where you go, "Oh, look! If we both play this, that person can't move." And but then the next turn, you're like, "No, no, no! Screw you! I'm not working with you. I'm now working with Sean." So that was good. It's a good fun filler. Again, another one that's coming at Essen. It's going to be inexpensive. Definitely one to consider. Shikoku. Agreed. Yeah, for me, it was a very quick game. There was a little bit of tension in there, a little bit, a little bit of decision in there. And for 10 minutes, I had a lot of fun. So I like the artwork. I like the central board in particular. I thought that was really quite fetching. Ooh. I liked it. And uh, yeah, uh, something I would very rarely turn down a game of. And I really like the flexibility in play account. So it's mm-hmm. still a game at the higher end or low end. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great filler. And that was Shikoku. Our seventh game, if you can believe it. I'm sure it feels like it's breezed past the past hour or so, is Fast Space Foundry. Designed by Dan Mefredini, published by Terranova Games for one to four players. Published playtime of 80 minutes, very specific, from 2015. The players take the roles of suppliers who are providing products to the front line of a galactic war. The game is played in two phases with very similar mechanisms but doing slightly different things. In the first phase there are two asteroids in play where you can mine red or blue resources, they have names but they're red or blue, and you're going to take them in shuttles to a foundry. Now the capacity of stuff that you can take is equal to a slightly um, funny roundelish clockwise system whereby you are playing a card from your hand with a number on from one to eight, and there are eight spaces in the foundry. And if you're going in, you play a card, and if the space is empty, that's fine, you have a capacity of one. But if it isn't, you carry on clockwise counting around until you get to an empty space, and the number of spaces you've gone through equals your capacity. So if I played the three card and I carried on around, and the next one that was actually open was the six, I would get to take four goods in with me. And exactly the same works in reverse when you're coming out. You play a card and you go around until you get to a filled berth and you pull that out and the number of spaces you went through is how many goods you can take away from the foundry. That same system stays in play during both phases of the game. Now, when you take these red and blue materials into the foundry, what can you do with them? You can load up your shuttles again to take them away in your... You've got freighters with a set amount of space. Now, you start with one. What you can do while you're in there, every space you go to gives you a special action. And in this first phase, one of the actions is to hire more crew by going to the canteen. You need some money. You can generate money by selling some of your your red goods. And 
when you hire crew, they come in different colors and they are captain and they come with their own freighter and they are a card that goes in your hands. It gives you an extra action for both phases, but also it gives you more capacity to load up on these raw goods and take them out into the second phase. Now, why are you going to do that? Because in the second phase, you're going to take those raw materials in your shuttles into a different foundry. And from there, you're going to process them and you're going to turn them into the actual products required on the front line of the war. There are five product cards laid out from eight at the beginning of the game, and they tell you which raw materials you turn into which products. So you might need two purple to turn into one laser cannon, for example, or one blue might turn into two batteries, whatever it may be. When you make those products, you're then looking to maybe charge them, which is going to cost you a little bit of money. And when they're charged, they're worth extra points and then load them back onto your shuttles and fly them out, out to your freighters on the way to Galactic War. And the stuff that you have in your freighters at the end of the game is what's going to score you points. You're going to score points for your products, for charging them, for having different unique things, including raw goods within your freighters. But... It's going to cost you points if you haven't managed to upgrade your, your freighters because they're going to take too long to get to the front or any of your freighters which are not exactly full and they all have a capacity between one and four, your, your base one and those you've got with the crew that you've hired. And if they're not completely exactly full, you're going to lose some points for that. So you have to plan ahead and you have to maximize your efficiency in far space foundry. Puria has also played it. Sean's going to fire some searing questions into us, I'm sure. Puria, your thoughts on Fast Space Foundry? It was a intriguing puzzle, in short. I thought the mechanic for bringing goods in and taking goods out again was a very nice little puzzle. I did find it a little hard to remember. <laughs> I think the number of times I got confused between pulling goods in and pulling them <laughs> off again was quite surprising to me. I also think if I came back to that game in three months' time... I would have forgotten every single rule. Which at least suggests it's unique. Yes. Which is something that we're looking for, right? Yeah. It's a mechanism I haven't seen exactly before. So just jump in there with a question for you boys. I'm ready. Right, so... Searing, I said. Uh, I wouldn't go searing. No. <laughs> Smouldering? No, not even. You smoulder all the time. <laughs> oh, smoulder for me, baby. <laughs> so I think we covered this before in one of our previews, possibly. I remember looking at it, certainly... Okay for something we did. Fair it? enough. And I absolutely hated the look of it. All I can see when I look at this game uh, is a, just a sea of symbols. Now, is it hard to learn and play, just to piggyback on what Puri was saying? I didn't find it intuitive. I think we've discussed this previously. As a gamer, you sometimes look at a board, and even if you can't remember... The well, game, you think you do anyway, whether you do or you don't. <laughs> <laughs> this goes here, that goes there, that scores those points. No, none of those is true. <laughs> Poria land it does. They call those legacy rules. <laughs> Poria turns every game into a legacy game. Every time he teaches it, the rules are slightly different. <laughs> a lot of games you look at as a gamer, and yes, you might not get them 100% the hundred common right, gamer language. But there's a common language there. Yeah. This game did not help itself at all. I could not look at anything and make sense of it until you explained it to me. Once I explained it to you, and the rule book is really good, by the way, just fantastic rule book. Once I explained it to you, did it become intuitive? Not not that mechanism. I get that mechanism is a little bit unique. And when you're going in and when you're going out, because you're not 
always going in and then you switch and you're always coming out. You're doing either or and you're making decisions to do either or all the time. I think that's where the confusion comes from because you've gone, oh yeah, if I go in there, I can do three. But if I go if I go out there, I can only do one. But if I go in there, because you've only got three cards in your hand, I think that's because you've got the six different numbers in your head. It gets confusing. So that aside, once I explained it to you, in terms of components and everything, did it all make sense? Was it all laid out? And I have no reservations around that. Yes, it did. I'm, as I said, more concerned about putting it back on the shelf, and in three months' time, if someone said, should we play this? I'll be like, I don't want to read the rules. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go and play something else. I can understand it because it, it, it has rarely got played since I picked it up, so I guess that must be part of it. And, well, I can't remember the rules to anything nowadays. Can I? I've done so many pit stops, so I can't even <laughs> blame it for that. I, I just can't remember rules. It's just all gone. Um, so I kind of get where you're coming from, but I see it as a positive. I don't want to be negative. I really actually like the game. Barring the concern I have of it not being very intuitive, I think the puzzle was very interesting. As you were saying, it's unique. The two phases brought some interesting mm-hmm. changes. And done efficiently with components. It's not like a whole new set of what it just yep. flips over. Here's the same stuff, but in slightly, use it in a slightly different way. Same discs, but they're for a slightly different use this time. I like that. Uh, did it feel thematic though? Did you feel like you were doing what the, what you were supposed to be doing or set up to be doing? I did. Apart from the capacity thing. Yeah. The capacity thing is just a puzzle, but I'm mining, I'm refining those goods, then I bring the raw products to the place where they make it, and then I'm converting them into the goods to sale off. What isn't thematic is the scoring. And that, I think, causes a disconnect and why it might be hard to learn. And the, your pattern of play is set very early and you almost have to play once to go through and go oh I see I see I see because there are nuances to the scoring that are very hard to pick up that you kind of have to know in in phase one how phase two ends and that's one of my concerns for someone playing it for the first time is that if you screw up in phase one there's no coming back yeah I mean I showed you an old score pad right and someone had two points it was Lloyd we should name him it was Lloyd he's got two points (laughs) out of there's that 25 between 20 and 25 would be a winning score so so he scored two points it was Lloyd did I cover that <laughs> who, who scored two points <laughs> can't remember Lloyd doing that so, so uh, scoring yours is what I'm talking about and you can explain to people as much as you want these are the products this one takes two of your discs and turns them into one this one takes one of your discs and turns them into two and you have to have your capacity completely maximised so if you fly there with a certain number of discs you've got a plan to come out with a certain number of discs very hard and the fact that the products are so limited means that you've really got to know I've got to dive in and grab that one and without playing it twice you're not going to listen to a rules explanation and be able to translate that into a good strategy for no because there's there's so much of the you know so much is slightly different that it's hard and then there's the special abilities so every time you activate a shuttle area you can make money or you can get a new crew member or you can charge your items depending on what phase you're in and they're a twist and in fact they're a main driver almost more than capacity for what you're actually choosing to do so it can be no i've got to move three things this turn oh no i'll get a rubbish action or Oh, no, I need that action. And we also saw with the pilots, those players who kind of gotten on the bandwagon and understood that were having 
loads more actions than yeah. those you have. That's that's the big negative, I think, that you need to be able to generate money early. And to do that, you have to get the right card in your hand, which will give you the actions to generate the money, to hire the pilot, to give you the flexibility to be able to then, and then have more actions. So is this the cantina action? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Right, yeah, so I haven't played the game, but to try and give myself a, a feel of it, I looked at a few reviews on uh, online and that was the the name that kept coming out mm. as how important the cantina action is to the whole game yeah and is the cantina action in itself interesting enough to sort of carry the game i don't think it carries the game i think that you have to do it to be competitive it's a resource you need to exploit and if you're not exploiting it you're going to lose yeah correct right. Because it gives you an extra card in your hands, so you get an extra actions. It gives you more capacity, which is going to score you more points. Even if you play poorly, more capacity should score you more points. And better pilot uh, and the, abilities. Yeah, oh yeah, the pilot abilities also. They, they let you bend the rules a bit and ship to two freighters at once and stuff like that. So you definitely have to get on board it. And if you are going later on in turn order in the first phase, it can be frustrating because you can't get in, you can't get, but you will get in eventually. Because everyone's got the same set of cards, so you will have a three and a seven or whatever it is. You at least get in there twice. Everyone can get in there twice. For me, that puts the game in an interesting position where I think it is definitely going to reward repeated play, especially if you're going to pull it out and say, "This is the game we played every once in a while, repeatedly for a couple of weeks." Ten games would probably really enjoy it. There's an expansion. I'm sure that's going to bring a bit which of variety. Which we found in my box, which I didn't know I, I had, but apparently I've got an expansion to me. <laughs> what I wouldn't say this is, is a casual game I can randomly take out every couple of months and play with new sets of players. Again. No, no, because, again, some of it's a bit hard to and also it's quite cutthroat. Phase two is... I've got to beat you to that product, otherwise I'm absolutely screwed. My plan's going to hit. So, and again, you have to plan ahead. So, I think you're right. I think it rewards repeated plays with serious gamers, even though it's not that long. It's probably an hour, slightly, slightly more. So, I think there's a lot of depth in the play for that. And, and I think the production's really good in terms of the rule book. I think although you might not like look at the components, Sean, the, the quality of the components is really good. Metal coins, I don't know whether they're Kickstarter or not. I think it only ever came out on Kickstarter. But all of it is, is quite a nice production. And then I looked at the, the publishing, what else they've done. They've done nothing else since 2016. I think they might not be making games anymore, which is a shame because this is something new. Mitrushka was one of their games. That's been picked up by someone else as well. They, they were making unique games, but they didn't seem to find that bigger market. So we've just reviewed a game that's niche and no longer available. <laughs> which is good. So look for it on the second-hand market because <laughs> there are copies available. A unique game... Interesting puzzle, rewards repeated play, not for casual games. Overlooked for me, probably because it was unique, but I think, I think it deserved more attention. I felt it was thematic, apart from this, the puzzly bit that's in there, which is all right, fairly central. A good production. You must enjoy spatial puzzles, but each spatial puzzle within itself is quite simple, but you must understand how they all chain together. And the fact that they all interlock. And so Fast Space Foundry, if you get a chance or you'll see it, grab it, you'll get a unique play experience. Okay, so for my last game of this uh, first half, I promise you it's a lot quicker in terms of my rules explanation. It's Blue Lagoon 2018 release. It'll be coming out in Essen. And it's a Rainer Knizia game from Blue Orange. And in the game we play Settlers Discovering a New Archipelago. You've got two phases to the game. The first one, we're going to add resources to this archipelago of islands. And then each player 
who's going to take turns in placing tokens. You've got boats, islands, and villages. And you're going to build a trail from your boats across the islands to gather resources, to build your villages, and to try and connect all the islands together. Now, the second phase, you can only build out from the villages that you've placed in the first phase. So it's a slight change there. And again, you're going to be building out, placing the tokens, placing your boats, gathering resources, and try to connect those islands. The points at the end of the game are, are multiple. Now you're going to be scoring for the majority of your tokens on each island, for reaching at least seven islands, for sets of resources, for collecting statues, for having the longest chain that touches each island. So lots of ways to score, very simple gameplay. We've all managed to play this one. So, Poria, what were your thoughts on Blue Lagoon? I have recently been less excited with most of the games that Reiner Kaniti has released. Well it's... done for spotting that subtle trend. <laughs> <laughs> He's been on the slide since 2003. <laughs> this was one of the few games I've played recently where I think it's back to his classic formula in a very positive way. It has all the characteristics of playing well, having a streamlined rule set, interesting decisions, and being that slight bit cutthroat. I really liked him. Slight well done. Say it's We're done. Uh, we're done. He said yeah. it. He didn't introduce topics. He just summed up apart for everyone. From, <laughs> apart from <laughs> the cutthroat, I think it's very cutthroat. I think it can be brutal. It can. You know, it can. Yeah. If I feel to me like the first phase is just the opening feints into the knife fight of the second phase. <laughs> second phase is where it really gets tasty. And my introduction into it, I'd heard about it, and I looked at it kind of vaguely, and there was a copy going on, which how you got to play from, from Asma Day was going around a, a game group, and I still wasn't interested. I still was like, yeah, yeah, Knizia, 60 minutes, blah, blah. Kind of a theme, you know, generic. I'm sure it's not that deep. In the... I just wasn't pulled in, and then... You guys played it, and everyone had something positive to say about it, right? And then uh, Joe from Asdavid, he had something positive stuff to say about it. And then from Gen Con, where a few copies were released, more and more positive things were being said. So when we got the chance to play it and film it and all the rest of it, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I'll give that one a go. And same as you guys, I was really surprised that Kinitsu could find that formula that he seemed to have lost. Right. For me, because he's actually been releasing more games in the past twelve years than he ever has before. None of them, almost none of them, hit in the spot. I think that's that's a two two point. I think that's the problem with Kanitsi is though he's he became so famous and so sought after. He almost became a production line, and it was quantity over quality. But for this one, I was actually slightly more hopeful because I, I believe in Blue Orange. Blue Orange aren't fools, though. I think they've got that knack of picking up a decent little puzzle game and, and turning it around or making it interesting and make, certainly making it look interesting yeah <laughs> well if you think about most of his releases they've actually been republished or re new versions of or all children's the games, games or, children's or versions yeah. of apps or stuff like that and a lot yeah. of them went to publishers who were keen just to get something out the door because it's his name right? and it's his yeah. name and as you say I think this is a rare case of a good publisher picking up a rare gem out of his collection rather than just saying right well Quest to Eldorado was Spudichar is nominated if you are so inclined Martin Griffiths who used to run London on board uh, we all know 
he, in the last couple of days, so probably oh, four months ago now that you listen to this <laughs> after I've edited it, though, yeah. it'll be about a week ago when this comes out, he did a statistical analysis of Knizzi's releases based on BGG ratings. And he did it from the mid-90s all the way through, looking at his heyday of games. And he looked at games rated over 7, between 6 and 7, which is mid-rate, and below 6. You know, and seeing how many were rated over 7, right? And he's saying, of course, the newer ones, they're going to get a bump, because ratings tend to go down over time. But there is a genuine statistical thing there, where the last two or three years, his games are higher rated than they have been for 10 years. And... If you're off that mind, it's quite an interesting post. And the people have said, oh, can you graph it in, in this way? And he's graphed it in a different way for them. And then he's done like plot charts for them and stuff like that. He's done weight versus rating and stuff like that. And it, yeah, it really, it's if you're that interested, you want to have a little thing about Knizia and, and how his career has gone over the last 20 years, it's worth checking out that blog post on Board Game Geek from yeah. Martin. Kind and of- Martin usually talks a lot of rubbish. So this is very <laughs> rare. He says a, lot, a bit of sense. But it kind of points to the fact that maybe we should stop dismissing him like we used to in terms of that throwing off a little bit of but it also points out that we were right to dismiss him for 10 years yes (laughs) Um, but but do we because the fact his name was let me think how to phrase this because I just said I dismissed it because it was a Knizia game but I hadn't really I was always going to try it but I was trying it with a heavy heart and it wasn't top of your list it was not top of my list that's right yeah it wasn't like we were talking earlier we're we're going to be doing like a top 10 what we're most anticipating from Essen and spoilers the Feld games are going to be up there somewhere for us yeah, because course, yeah. we both love Feld games so you're right Knizia has dropped off that sort of pedestal. I think for me it's almost just doing that sort of due diligence and trying out the game in that vague hope that you were going to find that gem that he is capable of yeah. and it's a case that you will try out the Knizia game so it's always on your radar even though it, it becomes a chore sometimes. Exactly. That's ex- there you go. Thanks for phrasing that for me. <laughs> I, I, and I am very positive all the way through. I, I think components do the job and nice and bright. I think it's really interactive. It, it was much more to it than I first thought. You've always got two or three good options. Hopefully there'll be bad options for the other people that you're playing with. The one thing that I'll say, the one slight negative is all the scoring options are hard to track and at times I play and then I go oh well I wonder what the score scores are and they come in and you go oh okay that's how many everyone scored yeah. and I didn't have the feeling for me anyway of going oh yeah I know this will be four more points than doing that or this will be two now that might be a good thing for you because you might not want to math it all out but it was slightly too vague in the score of me where I was like I really don't know who's won this I didn't actually notice a lot of time because to be honest being cutthroat Sometimes I must admit, I was like, this will be really funny because Sean's going to get pissed Welcome to <laughs> 10 plus years of gaming career. You go past that decade and you just stop worrying about having to win games. You've got a kind of vague idea because you know if you're, if you're messing with somebody else's score and you're also increasing your score, it's obviously good for you, bad for them. So you get a kind of feel. And, but if it's a tight game, yeah, I agree. You wouldn't necessarily know who's won. And in some ways, maybe that stops people having the AP of going, oh, this is three points. And this you, is yeah, points. it might well be that positive. Of, yeah, because AP is almost impossible. It's, it's so open. Like, you, you're not going to... But it's not really. To. There's still only two or three good moves. that <laughs> <laughs> you might think there's a lot you can do, but... It's a really good package. It's quite funny yeah. when you're... You leave someone else to block someone and then they just completely fail to do it and you're like, oh, 
are. But then you can't really get annoyed with them because the next turn someone will do a move and you'll be like, oh, I could have blocked that. I didn't see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's enough going on the map that that's constantly happening to you. Uh, I, I quite like the fact that you're vying. Is, is say I'm collecting water because of the way it works. You know, if I get to three, the fourth one is really worth a lot of points to me and someone else is near that water and there's a bit of panic of, oh, oh I've got to get to that one. <laughs> it's got that really nice thing I love when you've just finished your turn and you're just sitting there anxious. Yeah. Like, Please don't do that. Don't, go, don't, there. Do that. don't go there. But you can set up like lots of little trigger points for yourself, Laurie, where you're next to something, yeah. and you know that if somebody starts to build towards if it, they're you can too just, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can just swoop yeah. in and get it yeah. at your leisure. But I found myself in a game there. I left myself about six points there while I was right next to them, and I realised. Hold on, if they start building towards them, I can't react to everyone. I'm like, oh, reclaim them quick. It's like in the middle of a panic. Because <laughs> that's six whole rounds you've got to spend. That's, like, yeah. that's quite a lot of it. Okay, there's a lot of smiles. There's lots of laughter. Everyone's very positive about Blue Lagoon. Let's phrase that into verbal chocolate. Puria. Kinesia Classic at its finest. So for me, a very simple, but lots of thought in a very short time frame. Lots of ways to score, and that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a great thing, but in this one, it's a fantastic thing. A mean little gem. This would building buzz out of Gen Con. When games build buzz out of a convention, I'm usually a little bit wary, and I always look to see how convention-friendly the game is. Yeah, has it worked the fact that you're with your friends, you're excited, it was easy to explain, we all had a great time doing it, and then it's got no legs. This one has got the capacity to be a classic. It main release is coming at Essen. It's near the top of the hot list and it is there for good reason. And I think that this is going to be around for quite a long time. This is the next possibly Azul Splendor level hit. Possibly. It's that good. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Sean, you can just say the name if you want. Or well, I'll that do it. was Blue Lagoon. Well, any of us could have said it really. Blue but Lagoon. I did. Blue Lagoon. <laughs> it's blue lagoon. Blue lagoon. Get out. <laughs> I mean, he won't introduce his next game, so I don't know what he's sitting there just saying blue lagoon. Right, moving on. Via Nebula is a 2016 release designed by Martin Wallace, published by Space Cowboys. Two to four players plays around an hour. Players take on the roles of crafters, builders, and carriers, working together to expel the mists of Nebula exploring new regions, harvesting resources, and building new structures. On their turn, players will take two actions from the actions available to them. Players can open up new resource tiles, which makes resources available to them and other players. Players can claim construction sites on the board that will be needed to build buildings later. Players can place down meadows that create routes between the construction sites and the resources that are required. And lastly, players can hand in those resources on the construction sites to claim contracts that represent buildings. At the end of the game, the player with the most points wins, with points coming from meadow tiles that have been placed onto the tiles, from contracts, from resource tokens that have been claimed, and players will lose points for extra resources they didn't use either on the buildings or on resource tiles. Beautiful. Do you like how I put the Martin Wallace game before the brass section? I just wanted to claim all the credit for that. That's all. Excellent. Well done. Yeah, well done. thanks. Well done. Having said that, it's no, no, the too least much, too much. Martin Wallace game I think I've ever played. 
Well, no, no, no. no. You have two actions on your turn. Where's the back line? Well, <laughs> admittedly, but if this isn't Steam Railways of the World, Railroad Tycoon Light, I've done all this. Route building, two actions on a turn. Moving your moving goods. Moving resources. Along. When you open up a city, someone else can nick it yeah. and deliver it to where they want it to be. Yeah, but they're good. it's game nine Sean started to break (laughs) all of that lovely stuff condensed into I like the scrunchy hand movements you've got condensed would be into a ten minute really mean game this has been frothily whipped into with air just just peaks of egg whites of Wallace egg Wallaces but in a good egg white I mix and I turn the bowl and everything stays. And this, I've put so much air in, everything just falls oh, to the floor and goes. A flat souffle. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. You're just saying you don't like it and not anything else. Give us some else. No. Right, so you go into it and it's all very nice. The art looks really nice and you've got all these monsters hiding in this cloudy veil or whatever it that is. That we literally hadn't noticed and over two games. <laughs> they were on the board. And I thought, oh, this looks interesting. And I felt that the artwork and everything it's just misleading because as you said it is sort of taking from the, those earlier modern Wallace games as you've pointed out to me and yeah it just it felt like a, a sheep in wolf's clothing a sheep in sheep's clothing sheep a sheep a <laughs> sheep a in sheep. rabbit's clothing oh, oh is that what it is yeah, so <laughs> it's interesting a rabbit climbed into a sheep a, sh- a sheep a rabbit sheep yeah in a badger's cow oh okay I don't know what, don't you, what that means no move on great move production on. <laughs> no it is well produced it is very um, well produced insert is amazing is it yeah well, not for you you ham handed well alright my, my chipper art is going to get in there but it's been a long week people it's been a long week one of the biggest things that really disappointed me is the scoring everything the resources are worth either one or two points yeah the buildings are worth two three or four points yeah the explorers, two, explorers points. two points minus points one point it's all just so flat by the end of it you're like oh yeah you're 25 points oh oh I won with 27 you're like I don't care okay Sean loves Railways of the World I do right if you had someone who was interested in that sort of a game into it, of a train game of the pick up and deliver but he thought Railways of the World was too much would you consider Via Nebula as a possible entry for them to say, here's some of the concepts which we can build towards playing? Does it work on that level? It's a Space Cowboys game. They tend to do lighter games. I'm not, they do the odd heavier one, but Hitsy Road and stuff like that. It's Yes, I can see where you're coming from in that there are similar mechanisms, but... At the same time, I'd be worried I'd put it, put them off it because, as I said, I didn't think this was a particularly good game. I feel I felt. I'm trying was, to get to why we're on we're on rails, right? So we're talking about rails. Let's stay on the game. Feels like you're on rails, and it feels like when, when I first played with you guys, who played it before, I watched you play, and I made a misstep in the first round, but not joining up with you guys where where you were building your construction sites. I felt that's almost how you've got to play the game. And you kind of, once you do that, you're kind of on rails. You're all going for the same resources. You're all in the same area. And I felt that it wasn't productive to move off on your own. As it's not in 
railways of the world and stuff like that. You need to be in and around people, really. You don't want to be off in Moscow and have to build your way into the into the Marathon market, something like did. And he just went off into Moscow. Just, like, yeah, we went off in Moscow, and we were just like, we didn't we? We did. Yeah, it's going to take you about three hours just to get to the next town. Didn't work for Hitler. <laughs> didn't work. Didn't work. Oh, and from that, I just felt like it was all pretty much the same. And if I played it again, I'd probably play the way you guys played, and I wouldn't see any difference. Too interactive is what I've written down here in that everything you do benefits everyone, more or less. You open it up, everyone's going to grab one of those resources. You build a road, you just need that one central road, everything just then just branches off it. And because <laughs> everyone's gathered together. No one wants to be that person that can't get that Don't resource. be that guy. Don't, Don't be, be that, that guy, guy. <laughs> yeah. But it makes, you, it makes you not want to do anything. You sit there going, I... Oh no, I don't want to do that. Are we been... getting back to our classic impasse? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good example. There was a card available. Puri and I both had the two of the three resources to build it, and there was the fourth one was one space away to our shared building site. Neither of us was putting them. Neither. No, actually, it was two away. Sorry, and someone they needed to put one in so that we could build road. Take it because you can't do it in one turn. You're yeah. not doing it. No, no, no. It's take it build. It was one yeah. away. Yeah, but take it, build. Yeah. yeah, that's what it was. It was. Either way, it's discouraging me from doing things, and I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you because everything is too wide open. And even in those other games, there's the rails where things can only go in certain directions. Where in this, it's wide open fields, you can go in all six directions. I think it was a decent attempt to do something. I can see why it was designed and what they wanted out of the game. I just think they left it too exactly that too wide open. I don't. I haven't unenjoyed. I put too many negatives. It's too in there. bland. <laughs> too I quite enjoyed my couple of plays of it. Hate like I didn't begrudge. No, I didn't hate it at all. I didn't begrudge the time. I I thought it was quite pleasant pieces. I was thinking. I was making decisions. I was looking at what's on the board. None of it was very taxing. I didn't care particularly too much about it. If someone was to say, "Do you want to play Via Nebula?" I would be like, "Yeah, okay." Okay, if that's what we're playing, that's what we're playing, that's fine. Because I know it's only going to last an hour. And I know everyone's going to score 24, 23, 22 points or whatever it is. I know it's higher than that, but you'll still win by a point, I think. No, it wasn't you, it was me. That's right. <laughs> it was my Acropolis, you won by points. <laughs> um, but everyone will be fairly close to each other, right? There's yeah. no... No one's branching off. No one's doing anything wild. No, one, no one's going to do anything on that board that you go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So here's a question. Are we just too advanced for this target market that both this and Micropolis and these games are going for? I think we're certainly discovering the key strategies in the game before maybe someone less experienced but I think so. even less experienced gamers would, would get there in the end with this one and I think it would become a little bit redundant. Yeah, I think that even if you're going for a lighter weight or a, a gateway game, there's got to be a hook, right? There's got to be the catch, you know? I'll always love letter is lighter than this but it's got the hook and you go oh yeah I'm thinking differently in this even if you were a new player I still think it's obvious that I've opened up pigs I build that now everyone takes a pig from me and mm. it's formulaic almost and it just follows a set pattern and it doesn't change from game to game so I, I think no matter what the weight is because some, some of these lighter games we said we've got Blue Lagoon that's that's a lighter game that plays in under an hour okay. but we absolutely loved it this is just not as good a game yeah okay. yeah for, so for me uh, although it looks nice 
Uh, it's very light, and the obvious strategies really quickly presented themselves to me. And is obvious game obvious? Is obvious game is obvious, and Ronan and myself were were flouncing. We were flouncing around the Bring and Buy at uh, the UK Games Expo, <laughs> yeah. and literally our hands pretty much grabbed it at the same time. We went, "Oh, my Wallace game I wanted to try this." Having and heard I, really good things, uh, having heard decent things about it. And I, being the gracious chap that I am, said to Ronan, no, no I'll it. stick with these 18 games. I'll take these 34. <laughs> you buy the only one you've wanted to buy all day. And so I let Ronan have it, and I, that's the best decision I made in the Xbox. <laughs> so I did buy it secondhand. It, I think it was a tenner. It wasn't a lot of money. You got mugged. <laughs> I don't think I did. Uh, I, I'm quite happy to pay that amount for it. Played a couple of games. Like I said, I'm not going to keep it. I'd play it again. It's it's kind of inoffensive. It looks really nice. It's okay. Okay. Just so, that, that was it. Okay. okay. I quietly said okay. <laughs> and that was Via Nebula. And we shall see you after the break for our brass rundown and comparison. Ooh. Where, where there's muck. So as promised for this final section of the podcast this time around, we're going to be focusing on the Roxley Games releases of Brass, Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham. We're going to start by going over Brass Lancashire briefly and just having a chat about our history with it and our thoughts on it. And then we're going to discuss Brass Birmingham, which is the new version which they have developed from that original system. So for Brass itself, Brass Lancashire, Brass as it was, two to four player game, Three hour playtime, originally published in 2007, which I think is going to date Poirier and I's entry into uh, hobby gaming as you listen onwards. Designed by Martin Wallace and published nowadays by Roxley Games. The whole theme of Brass Lancashire is that you're developing the Lancashire area of Northern England over two eras, between 1770 and 1870, during the Canal era and the Railway era, and you're looking to develop the industries which were part of the Industrial Revolution and in that area at that time. There's a shared deck of cards, and they are going to show locations on the map, and they're going to show the different industries you can build, being coal mines, iron smelters, ports, ships, and cotton mills. On a player's turn, they're gonna play two of these cards and that's gonna allow them to build these industries in the the different towns around the map and also to link the industries up in the first era using canals and in the second era using railways. Now, when you build something, that's not gonna give you any benefit straight away. You're gonna try and flip it in some manner. And when you flip something, it's gonna increase your income, giving you money, because more or less every action costs you money unless you're taking a loan. It is, after all, a Martin Wallace game. And also at the end of the era is we're gonna have scoring and only buildings that have been flipped somehow are gonna score you points. How do we go about flipping them? Well, the coal and the iron producers are gonna have cubes on them when you build them, depending upon what level they are. And all the buildings come in different levels of development. And when you empty them off the resources, if anyone does it and uses your resources, it's gonna flip them over to score you those points and increase your income. When you build ships, they're quite advanced and they're quite hard to get to, but they'll immediately flip when you build them. And for ports and cotton mills, you wanna do the trade action to get those flipped over. Cotton mills can be linked to an outside market, which will give you certain bonus in your income, but only to a certain point until that market becomes flooded. Or you can use your own or other people's ports to flip over cotton mills. And when the port flips over, that is also how you're gonna score points and get income. At the end of the canal era, you're gonna score your points, then all the canal links are gonna disappear. 
and also all the level one buildings which have been built are going to uh, disappear so in order to counteract that the final action you can take apart from ones i've just discussed there is that you can develop away buildings it burns iron up from the map and you can take away the lowest level of buildings in areas and you can get to your better ones or ones that will stick around during the canal era you'll only ever been able to build one tile into each city or town on the board when we go into the railway era you can build links quicker using lots of coal and spending more money and also you can start to build more than one tile into each location looking to build a monopoly in areas as you develop your own network in order to score the most points in brass lancashire so to start with this whole sort of discussion topic i'm going to ask the fellas to give us their history with the games including what was your verdict the first time around on brass when you originally played it Pura. brass is in fact one of the very first games i played mm -hmm. so i got introduced to gaming through a colleague who uh, while we were working abroad, brought a couple of games to the hotel we were staying at. In retrospect, chucked me straight into the deep end. Yes, so. yes. Wasn't Dominant Species was that part yes. of that story? We tried to play Dominant Species two-player, <laughs> which means playing three species each. Do not do that, ever. I wouldn't want to do that now. And I've played more than 20 games of Dominant Species. That's not good. That didn't go very well. But he brought Brass, and, you know, back to what we said earlier... It was really eye-opening at the time to have games that had such depth in terms of, like, especially for brass, the economy, such depth in terms of strategy, and uh, it's really what got me hooked into games. And since then, I've always kind of had an inkling towards heavier games, and I think that introduction is partly, and specifically brass, is part of that reason. Was it, was it nature or nurture? Was it in you, or did it bring it out? <laughs> Who knows? We're not going to answer that today. Sean, brass... So again, one of the very first games I played, get back into the hobby, and I got into the hobby really to play games like Arkham Horror and Descent and things like that which were coming out around the time, and yeah, it didn't sing to me. It was way before I'd sort of discovered that the love for sort of the Euro games, the economy games, I think I ended up pushing back the dawn of my sort of... My, evolution? My evolution, my Euro gaming evolution, for sure. He's still uh, bent over me. You've seen him, right? Something's going on somewhere. So, well, Link. so yeah, I think it, it actually probably hindered me getting into Euro gaming a little bit because it was, it's, it was quite intense. I didn't enjoy Is that it. the game's fault? Or was it, you feel like you just weren't ready? I wasn't, for it I wasn't ready. It was uh, a friend of ours who kind of likes to play deep games depending regardless if the people was it Pura? it wasn't no not this time well, there's beginner rules <laughs> no dude no advanced rules <laughs> straight in advanced rules no real explanation <laughs> still Keep it just, just enough away so that they win the game oh not Pura. oh no okay so I've said it before this was when it first came out in 2007 was when I was coming back into the hobby at one of my very first heavier games and we played it quite a lot when it came out it was a favourite we used to play two or three times a week with our group of friends based around school friends and it was fantastic uh, and through to about 2011 I played it quite regularly and I was I was pretty good I'd say I could have gone into a competition and I wouldn't have won anything but I, yeah, I wouldn't have been embarrassed like I would in any other game in the world if I tried to go to a competition for it since 2011 it died off other games came in doing the podcast and stuff so I only played it four times in the seven years since then and then obviously I've got the reprint now and back on loving it but it's always been a top 50 game it was in my top 10 at one time slipped down into the top 20 I can't remember where I put it in the top 50 but it was definitely in there wasn't it oh it was, it was definitely in there yeah, yeah yeah I think it was still top 20 was it 
I think so. Yeah. I think so. Anyway, some someone, no one will bother to check back that. So <laughs> I'm just going to say it was number seven. It was definitely number seventeen. Hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. was number eighteen. Was it? No, you were wrong. No one's going to check. Shut up. <laughs> okay. One of the reasons they've done this reprint is there's a massive improvement in artwork and components. There's not even worth discussing whether that's true or not. It is just a fact. The original artwork was that old tree fog style. It was a lot of it was done by Martin Wallace's wife, the artwork and what have you. And while it was functional, it wasn't very attractive. So given we know the components are amazing, any component flaws, any comments, anything at all interesting you've got to say about the components? I think the only thing that slightly put me off, didn't put me off at all, because it obviously is beautiful. Those clays, the clay coins are absolutely lovely just to f- put through your fingers lick and feel them and lick, bite. Yeah. Natalie actually did bite one. Yeah. Just as she was like, that's not clay. Well, it might be. It might be. I have to have another <laughs> How bite. does she know what clay tastes like? I don't know. You need to explain this to me. <laughs> Next time she's on, licking I'll, pots. I'll, I'll yeah. ask the question. But the only thing. Next time she's on, why don't you ask her, like, at home, yeah, talk to each other on the that's podcast. The time we talk, Skype. <laughs> we talk through podcast. Interesting. <laughs> Our next week's episode isn't that her favourite podcast? Serial killers. <laughs> podcast saved our marriage. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> no, true. And but the components of the brass, like only issue I had. If you're going to overproduce it with those, I'd like to have seen something else rather than the little cubes. And it's very dark, so sometimes seeing things isn't isn't as easy as it maybe could be. I don't agree. I think in terms of the dark, they went that extra step to have the light side and the dark side. Oh, that's that's oh no, no, you're <laughs> jumping ahead. You're jumping the gun. <laughs> um, and I think they made the right choices about components versus functionality in terms of leaving things that work as they were. I don't think the game would have been better with extra Stegmire level. Oh, everything's, everything's better with Stegmaier level stuff. Cubes are like my comfort blanket. It might might take them out of my happy place there, old cubes. This is a euro. Mm, I can count cubes. They're nice. Um, I hadn't considered cubes or not because I I love them so much. I what I will Only say because they match your head. That is also true, <laughs> but very much smaller versions. Uh, for some reason, and whatever it might be, it might be just the the media created look, but it. The look fits the theme. It feels Victorian and industrial. And yeah, yeah. Whatever sure. it is, it, 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 they've just got that completely right. But they've still managed to make it look incredibly stylish. Incredibly stylish. stylish. Yeah, agreed. A stylized version of the Industrial Revolution. But beauty is only skin deep. Brass had fallen off the radar, you know, maybe naturally after 11 years. You wouldn't see it played as much. Now it's massively back on the radar. Why has this version made such a difference? Because suddenly Brass is a huge name in the market again. In part, I think that might be due to Kickstarter. Kickstarter is one of the main mechanisms for building hype these days anyway. In a lot of... Kicks, as, as content creators, Kickstarter games are so much more information about them. So much easier to deal with companies that are doing a Kickstarter because they want information to get out. We have videos, this is just on the side, we have videos prepared for games that are coming out at Essen that we've been told don't release. You're where people are putting together their wish list right now, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. Like, this is this is when you're generating buzz. No, no, release it the week before. Oh, well, you know, so you're right. Kickstarter is a huge marketing tool and it forces people to get the name of their game out, which other publishers just, even if you don't use Kickstarter, learn from, get information out. 
And just to say it now, I think they ran one of the best Kickstarters I've seen. I think it was good product brought back, which mm-hmm. I think we've all said we like the game. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Spending attention on nearly everything that players of Brass remember as being a bit odd. Yeah. You know, all those little rule exceptions. That yeah, Liverpool, been... Birkenhead, Virtual for, Link. Yes. Explain that three times when you haven't remembered. For trade, but not for cold. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you played this game? <laughs> they spent time and effort on components where it mattered. They upgraded the things that mattered and they left everything else the way it was just to jump on there about why why is it make that splash now some of it we touched upon obviously the look of the game kickstarter is such a massive marketing tool at the moment but i also think martin wallace is since sort of the demise of tree frog i think his his star has started to shine again i think he was he was starting to push out a lot of games that were kind of going under the radar maybe not hitting the hitting the mark did moonger invaders also damage his reputation yeah and i think people. since then people like osprey have been picking up games roxley have picked up a game and other people have been picking up his games and he's allowed to concentrate on being a designer all of a sudden and he's bringing out the best under really games it, that's funny because i'm not sure he had any hand up to part in any of the design for this re- this reproduction but I think his name is all of a sudden it's up there with the Knizia's again whereas maybe or the Felds or the Rosenbergs yeah the Felds we just yeah. said Knizia was, was relevant <laughs> well, he is now <laughs> two years on Martin's <laughs> and it's one of those things where I mean they sold so many copies that then so many people are now able to teach it that then that just grows and then explodes it's exponential growth in the market that's why you see these things bloom and it's a whole new generation of gamers who weren't in the market brass, yeah. and um, you know trying to I, I did take the old copy of brass sometimes to gaming nights trying to get people to play that that hadn't heard of it were like because like, mm, it just did not fit in the market it just looked terrible and it was date. it looked dated let's yeah, be honest very me. much so okay so in terms of dated we had a long time to play brass originally I'm guessing how many times did you play brass before this before yeah. uh, once Maybe twice, but definitely once okay. only. I might cut you out the question <laughs> Had play become formulaic and were people starting to follow a bit of a script in playing Brass Lancashire? I think for those people who are playing a lot, there were set strategies. You know, you can see that nowadays when you see new players come to the game and they ask questions on forums like, why has this happened? You know, we run out of these cubes and experienced players will go, that should never happen because you should have done X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I, I can't deny I think there was a bit of a script and because it was so loved and so heavily played there were particular strategies that just were fundamentally better than others <laughs> there's a couple of things to think about here for me but one of them is um, watching players who played a lot of brass originally uh, we're going to go over brass Berlin, but developing a lot and taking a lot of loans in the first era and then being able, unable to catch up in the second half because it was a standard brass Lancashire thing just develop away those load buildings. They don't score that much. Take a load of loans, then be able to build a whole load of railway links because railway links and canal links score for all the industries that are either end of them and the railways are naturally going to score more because there'll be more stuff in there. So that's what people used to, I'll say my same way, develop away all that rubbish and then I'll, I'll go. You can't do that in Berwyn. That's good to see. I think that's probably one of the drivers that brought them to around to producing. Players. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which, you know, it's clear that they've played Brass Lancashire a lot from what they did for Brass Birmingham. But I do need to throw just a personal thing back to Puria. We taught Brass Lancashire the other day 
And one of the things we taught was you will have to take a loan, otherwise you won't win the game. <laughs> because we had played it and that's what you do and everyone takes loans. And what happened to us, Freya? We, we were not. We did not win. And what happened to the player who won? She did not take a She us. did not take a loan. <laughs> Amazing. It was Terry, who's been on the podcast. She went through the whole game, zero loans, just concentrating on getting her income up. Had her income up at like 19 by two thirds of the way through the game and never had to take a loan and won. Yeah, and maybe that's also to do with the fact that, as we we're saying, a lot of players who were left playing it would play with themselves again and again. So you have this. Would they of... play with each other <laughs> again and again? No. What would they do? <laughs> there would be play. A lot of players who were left playing brass, repeatedly playing with the same players, yeah. were creating local kind of meta strategies. Yeah, groupthink. Yeah. Whereby this this appears to be the only exactly. valid way. And so. I think that new generation of gamers is kind of re energize that pool and you know that's so even brass languages feeling yeah. fresher for that yeah, yeah. So having cut Sean out the last one mm. lack of two player map because there's been a fan made two player map available for a long time you could get decent copies printed off whatever and people use that a lot for brass they have decided not to put that in here which was a bit of a surprise to me yeah I don't think it needed it because of the what they have done obviously they've brought in their own two player rules as a part uh, but they've also included the variant that was developed. But what they do is very much, they drive you into certain areas of the board. It's very hard to get to the sort of extremities of the board where the link we can't get the links to initially. So you're kind of driven together to a certain degree. I think, don't think a two-player is ever going to be the most cutthroat because the role is always a bit of wiggle room if you don't want to play like that. But I think what they do is try to push you together. I actually think that colour-coding system works really well. It works to a degree, but it's not tight enough. So if I remember, because you've taken out all the colours that aren't for two players, yeah. you can still use industries to kind of spread slightly outwards, but that's a lot of hard work because you can't use the actual locations anymore. But even so, they only take out a couple of locations, so a couple, it's like four or five cities to go and down to. out the others. So yeah. It's still a lot looser. There's still a, it's a lot easier to use your own stuff. You don't get stuff nicked off you. You know, you don't get the last port taken and stuff like that. Why are you it's, playing brass with two players anyway? Well, that, well, with a two-player map. So the what I had in my head was what I did with Concordia, where base Concordia, why would you play it with two players? Playing a two-player map of Concordia is really good. Really good. I know, um, trust me, we've, Rachel and I have played it, and it was because it's so tight, and, and it, you're back to that feeling like... I don't know why they didn't room. just go the whole hog, like... And again, piggybacking on what you're saying there, Roland, I mean, I did quite like it with two players because uh, I played a lot of game in two players and it was the initial way that I had to play it. And then we did quite enjoy it. But why didn't they just take away those areas completely? Why wouldn't they just say, well, these are now off? You can't build into them at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. but so I, I think that's an oversight, but there you go. My next question is, would um, the Birmingham reprint by itself have had such an impact without them also bringing Brass Lancashire out with it. If they'd just gone, we've got a new version of Brass, how would that have gone down? Going back to the early discussion we had around that large set of gamers who remember Brass fondly, but had probably burnt out on it, I think this was a really clever way to bring them back into the Kickstarter, bringing a bit of excitement for something that's very similar to what they remember, but novel and fresh. Do you think many people backed just for Brass Birmingham? I would say the vast majority. I, just for Brass Birmingham. Just no, for Brass Birmingham. I, I think, think so. it was. Because I think the artwork and everything played a part, but 
you would have only had that core that was still playing brass and still wanted to play brass and wanted that updated version. But I think what Brass Birmingham did, that was the excitement. It was like, ooh, a new brass. A new... I think if they'd have brought out Brass Birmingham itself, just on its own, I think they would have got similar figures. But those people who love brass were probably worth willing to invest the money for the new version. For a new version. so much nicer. Yeah, yeah but it, it, they, those well. people would still surely... Like, after all those years, a sequel to Brass. Like, surely those... I, I think having the rights for Visual One, they gave it a bit of heft and a bit of authenticity. That it, it wasn't just sort of a fan expansion. It was, oh, no, this is... They've got the actual thing itself. And for me, I know what you're saying, but it made backing a lot easier because I wanted that yeah. version. So it was a no-brainer to then get Birmingham because it was like, well, I'm definitely buying the new, like, the new version of Brass Lancashire. Oh, that's an add-on? Sure. Why and that's the way I... You're a brass it. fan. Like you're a brass fan. And as good a game as it is... I love a is, lot of different alloys. <laughs> <laughs> but you like a bit of copper. Uh, as good as... Copper's good as, an <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, as good as it is, there wasn't a massive fan base for it. I bought Brass Lancashire off the back of Brass Birmingham coming out because I wanted to try this new version. And I brought... Brass I want to wash your mouth out. Yeah. I want to wash your mouth out. There's a but as, as we're going to find out, I've kind of flipped to the other. Don't place. waste the gold, man. <laughs> we're about to find out. Literally, here. the next thing. Right. So we've clearly got very different opinions on that. But it's quite good to see it come from different ways. Whereas we've gone, oh no, the Brass Lancashire was the appeal. Brass Birmingham the add-on. You've got Brass Birmingham was the appeal. Oh, I may as well get Brass Lancashire. So it clearly worked both ways. And it was. The, the pairing worked. Mm. Okay, so my last question before we do go on to Brass Birmingham is, are there any other games you nominate for the Roxley treatment? Now, we've been discussing this because a bit of a Super Meeple came into the discussion where they've been re-releasing games like they've got uh, Antiki coming out as US Postal Service and they've got um, Java come out as Cuzco to meet with Mexico and Tikal. But the rules are very much the same. So a reprint is, you know, with nicer components is one thing. Tweaking the rules... To also sort of bring up the and also maybe a slightly different version with different components, that would be the full Roxley treatment now for me. In fact, if they don't do this for every game they bring out, I'm gonna be very upset. I'm gonna cry and send them abusive emails. So other I, games nominated for the Roxley treatment. Right, so my two, two slightly differing reasons. One is based purely on the looks of the game and the component quality, and it's a very popular game. You can get it. It's not like it's hard to get. It's Castles of Burgundy. I think Castle of a fantastic game, one of my favourite failed games, one of my favourite games. But the component quality, certainly in my Ravensburger game, is atrocious. It's paper thin boards. I don't think boards. there's any other version of that. Well, they all come like that. Um, paper thin boards, paper thin chits. It, it just doesn't look nice. And I just wish a game that, that is that good would look a little bit nicer. I'm not saying I disagree with you, but people sometimes question why is Castles of Burgundy so high in the BGG rankings? The reason is the components are so cheap it's like 20 quid to buy. So you look at it as this game, I might as well spend 20 quid on it, it's not 50 quid. And there's a payoff there with those two. Now, I know that's not answering the question I put to you, and I actually think it's a good choice. I think Castle Burgundy is a more popular game. We'll talk about brass and wanting to have that updated version and uh, the nicer version of, of it. I think Castle Burgundy is so popular, I think you'd still have a massive market of what people who love it. I'd game. love for them to do is there's about eight or nine or even more expansions, isn't there? Well, there's the gardens and there's the goats and there's the alternate boards and there's monasteries. I'd love for them to take all of those, 
decide which are worthwhile and then roll them into this is you know castles of burgundia or something <laughs> it's you know because we've got a few of them bits of bobs here and there the new the new maps are always nice to have but like the monasteries are kind of rubbish we just chain five things together it mm. but the goats are quite handy and it's like Slam into a big box version just... i don't want a big box version i want the best version, like the essential, yeah, like okay, yeah, I want yeah, the essential yeah. version of these. These are the bits that are the best off it. Yeah. A nomination from you for Roxley treatment, Peria. It's going to be a little bit controversial because I actually love the game, but I think we all agree the publisher hasn't really done much to help it, which is terraforming Mars. Go on. <laughs> I think I agree with you. But go on, go on. It's okay. It, like you, it's mostly visual, right? It's it's poor quality components, especially stuff like you know the player boards. You know, it just doesn't bother me. Does bother uh, me. It does, does bother me. me for the price point. It yeah. bothered me. Castles of Burgundy, I'll put up with because, as you said, it's twenty quid. Terraforming Mars for a long, long time was sixty pounds. Was it? Yeah, and I, I still oh, I feel like towards fifty. So I'm not for pay that much money for poor quality. Yes, it's a great game, and I, I still paid it, but begrudgingly. And I do think at some point there are a few rules things I would tweak as well. Such and as. one is rolling the expansions together, but there's also just some of the take that cards like the asteroids you like, played on me yes constantly <laughs> literally constantly <laughs> last weekend oh. well there are two of them are promo cards and he got and the worst thing is we're playing drafting and I was to his right and I was like he's not going to take another one boom your plants are dead boom your plants are dead again I was going to kill him oh god and then he started doing the thing where he has 28 blue cards out action and action and action and everyone else is done for you and you're going to win <laughs> I had a bit of a rant at him. Anyway. Such um, a bitter man on his birthday. Terraforming Mars, the thing, people always blame Stronghold Games, right? My understanding is they just signed the rights to reprint it. They're, I think it's the reason is those complaints are so bad because it's a Fricks Games game and they're a tiny company. I'm not judging. So yeah, that's... Yeah, I'm not judging. I just wish such a game was in better hands. That's all. I am less on board with that than I am Castles Burgundy because I've got... Don't mind the components at all on Terraforming Mars. Mm. What's your first choice? My first one's Power Grid. See now, I looked. I thought about Power Grid, but they did a deluxe version of Power Grid, which is worse. Was it? So there you go. <laughs> I thought it was nicer. I, thought no, it was nicer. Like, I don't think it did the right things. No, I didn't like the cartoony art. Really it just made it bigger yeah. and cartoony art. I quite liked it. I quite no, liked it, I wouldn't. And uh, I'd like the best of the maps and the best of the yeah, variants. Yeah. Like I've got a few of them. Not I ever play them very much, but I would like another thing where they just make it look good. It just. It's now become a hard sell, right, Power Grid? It's died off. It's hard to get plays in. Even people who know it and like it are reluctant to play it. Oh, Power Grid. But it's a great game. It is a good game. It's going, oh, Power Grid. So what rules changes would you want? I'm not sure that I want rules changes to the original one, although I think they could do with amalgamating those two power plant decks into what works best. I'm not sure the base deck is fully, you know, there's a couple of tweaks there. But it's another thing, I think, with Castle Burgundy, where I'd like them to, what are the best maps that work, the most interesting ones, rather than, there's so many map expansions out there, and you've got to play them a few times to really get your head around them. So, so something like that would be nice, or to have the ability to have the components in the box to play variants with what you've got. So Power Grid would be my first one. So, sure. Any more? Yeah, so my second choice, and I know Ronan agrees with me because I've just glanced over and it's uh, it's second on his list. I hate you. I'll put a line <laughs> so you can that. you can cross out ship shipyard. <laughs> cross you out. So shipyard is a fantastic game, a really clever, thinky, but it's long. It looks dated. It could do with a little bit of streamlining, 
And I think if you did that, you'd have a very similar sort of hit to brass. I don't want to streamline, by the way. You don't want to streamline? No, 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 no it's shorter. <laughs> longer, maybe. <laughs> I actually really like Shipyard. Yeah. It's a fantastic uh, game. Really it, it looked kind of dated when it came out. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, it was 2009, I think, and even then it was... Yeah. Yeah. And there were things they could do, right? They could change up those tiles you can build. They could change up the scoring points. They could change the rondels around a little bit. Mm. It hasn't got that much variety play to play, right? It's not a 30-play game. I wouldn't have thought about it. It's for some people, not for me. But but yeah, I agree. It should get more love than it gets, I think. I think so too, yeah. It's quite hard to teach because you kind of have to know what all the actions are. Well, it takes a long time to teach, but you don't really have to know. So talking of industry news, Mr. Sushi started his own publisher. Oh, uh, and Essen, I am desperately trying to think. Is it Underwater Cities? Is his Possibly, game? Yeah, it's, coming, yeah, it's his yeah. own publishing house. They're coming out with it, so um, we we will be covering that game for sure. Definitely. Any other nominations? Never going to happen. But my one of my favourite games, Dune. Dune. One of my favourite games, Dune. No, we're going to leave Dune in. <laughs> <laughs> And let, let, me, let me just ask, all right? So this is very important. In the reprint that you imagine, is there a rule whereby you're trying to get a game of it together, you can only get five players, you force your mate to join in without a rules explanation, so without a rules so explanation, bitter. and then on the first turn, allow him to put 90% of his army in the way of the storm, so that at the end of the very first turn, he's out of the game for the next three hours, and you never told him, despite the fact he didn't have a rules explanation. Is there a rule against that, Puria, for no, no particular reason? Because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I need to kill them. They need to kill them for Oh my God. Not even, they need to score points. It's just a storm wipe me out. I was like, what the? Yeah, you're out of the game, mate. This game of alliances, no one wants to be on your team because you suck. <laughs> Putting aside the history. <laughs> I hate um, There is a reprint. Rex. Right. Have you played it? Yes. And it's just not the same. It's just not June. It's just you not know, June. Gale Force 9 has signed... And they're not going to reprint this one. It's a they, they don't have the mechanisms, yeah. no. But yeah. they do good jobs. Yeah. I'm Except still waiting. They've got a Dungeons & Dragons game that they're just basically dun, announced dun, at Gen Con. Seem to be a bit behind on their schedule, don't they? It's a really old game. The core of it is magnificent. It could do with new version. It could do with those slight modernizations. Some of which we saw in Rex, but other things I think... I think they could still do an expansion with nicer people to play with mm. and better rules my last one is Olympus not Olympus always get confused with those I two I know Olympus is the one I'm looking now at from Stratolibri it's from 2010 it's a really nice Greek themed worker placement game where you activate gods and you work on the back of each other but there's a plague mechanism as well where you kick each other out and the biggest thing for this is I think it needed a, like 2% worth of sanding down some of the finer edges to make it slightly less clunky, like the tiny amount to make it playable, and then a really nice thematic artwork and components, because for the game, I really think it deserves a lot of attention. It's a two-hour Euro that I just thought was brilliant, but just never got the love. Unlike the fan base you have for Brass, yeah. would anyone back that Kickstarter? I think that if a company did it right, it would. Because I'm seeing heavier games going on Kickstarter and funding no matter what they are or how bad the rulebook is. You know, stick a Greek theme on it 
and say it's got two and a half hour play length and you're getting 100,000 pounds. So I think if, if you went for it and made it look nice, the difference with that one is compared to most of the other ones I see is that that's a really good game. I, people have got to learn to read rule books. Anyway, any other nominations from anyone? No, that was me. Okay, marvellous. We're going to move on to Brass Birmingham itself. Now this one, while being based on the design by Martin Wallace, was developed, we'll say, by Gavin Brown and Matt Tolman from Rockstar Games. This is a 2018 release. This is two to four players, and it's got a two-hour playtime, and that might be the first thing I just shoot across your bowels. An hour quicker than Lancashire? Any thoughts? Uh, it felt the same. It felt similar to me. felt yeah. similar to me? Yeah, same. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. So the rules are all of the above, except we no longer have ports and ships. They are out of here. To replace them, we've got potteries, manufacturing, and breweries, all of which are industries you build on the map, similar to how you would do cotton mills in the Lancashire version. If you want to build double rail links, then you have to use the beer from the breweries. Also, flipping over your industries is slightly different. You must trade. When you trade, it always takes beer. There is some that starts on the board for the first person to trade in specific areas. After that, you have to generate it from somewhere or steal someone else's. And when you trade, it must be to specific merchants. There are outlets to the outside markets from here, and there are variable tiles. And each time you set it up, you swap around which tiles go where. So at one point, Oxford might only want pottery for example and the next time around it might want manufacturing so that's going to vary the setup which doesn't really happen in Lancashire it's obviously a different map so you're playing on different slightly different areas with different connections with Birmingham being the heart of this which way more connections than any of the areas in Lancashire have uh, and there's also a scouting action in which you throw a card away to swap two cards for two wild cards one's a wild industry one's a wild location you can use those as if they were that location or that industry and also you start with less money, which has an impact on gameplay. So if we just kick straight into Birmingham, presuming that we know a little bit about Lancashire. In Lancashire, the foreign market is the trade limitation, right? You need ports or the foreign market, and the foreign market will eventually get rinsed. In Birmingham, they've introduced this whole new mechanism and a whole new building of beer, and that is the trade limitation. How does that work for you? It really seemed to slow the game down. I felt, unlike Brass, this takes both in terms of networks and everything else, just because everything needs beer and there's such a limited supply of it at the beginning of the game, it felt a bit slower. Not, I don't think that's good or bad particularly, but just the economy felt a bit slower for me. So for me, and I'm just going to preface this by saying all of my feelings on Bass Birmingham come from a, a very similar place in terms of I wasn't, as I said, a frequent player of Brass Lancashire. And I got Brass Birmingham on, off the back of basically. I live I live near Birmingham. Dudley, my hometown now, is on on the map. It's never my wife's... Be your hometown. <laughs> never be your hometown. Okay, my the town which where I currently reside is on the map. My <laughs> wife's from Birmingham, so we we're quite excited to play Birmingham. Now, having played Brass Lancashire and then going straight into Brass Birmingham, we kind of sort of took a step back and things like beer felt really fiddly and didn't really see why why they had changed it now i'm still finding my feet with lancashire and at the moment the the beer just seems overly fiddly it seems a step too far for me in my sort of progression into the brass system yeah and and that echoes something i've written down that i think the whole beer mechanism is going to be the biggest barrier to new players coming into the whole brass system some things they've done is streamlined it and with variety and to make things slightly more flexible. 
but beer is the one thing that is it's much less obvious as a mechanism because you also use it if you want to do a double rail link you must spend beer as well also when you want to use coal in either game it must be linked via a physical link somehow to where you want it if you want to use iron it's just a small batch so that can kind of it goes by cart it can teleport right that's what everyone calls it it's flying iron beer is a mixture of both if you're using someone else's beer you must be connected if you're using your own beer you don't have to be and that adds a layer of confusion to people and for me that might be symptomatic of the fact that brass seems to have been re-released for everyone I just can't get away from the fact that I think Birmingham was released for brass players who know what they're doing because that extra level of complexity is fine if you're familiar with brass and you're going right here's the changes to the original got it okay that's a bit fiddly but I understand if you put a new play in that and that's quite a chunk of change to, to get your head around. Especially because there are experienced players around. And if you're experienced at Lancashire, Birmingham takes maybe one play to get used to. And then you see, oh, I can exploit this. There's some things going on. And one of th- the beer, I think, is much more cutthroat than the foreign, foreign market can be cutthroat. But beer is lethal. Mm. And grabbing hold of an area where you can build beer, knowing you can, and keeping it to yourself for game-end beer can swing massively because you can do double, triple flips at the end of the game denying someone else like turn order on the last turn in brass birmingham because of the beer is massive either you want beer to be built during that turn or you want to be the person getting in ahead of the people and it's kind of hard to judge sometimes which one it's going to be mm-hmm. are you sure i'm going to build a brewery and he's the first player so i can grab it a second player or is he not going to do that so all... <sighs> and it makes the planning so much harder for yeah the it really in, does yeah and the original brass you because you had the wild, mad, you know, any two cards could be spent as a, as a wild, mm-hmm. you always had a choice to say, right, okay, I'm going to do that, build a wild here, and I know I can flip it. That's yeah, fine. yeah. Here, that's such a harder choice, More especially for a beginner. get left on flip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can really screw yourself. It was quite rare in brass with experienced players to, like, completely screw yourself out of flipping something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. here, I can totally see it. Yeah, happen. yeah, yeah, it happens a lot. Moving on from that beer mechanism, there are two farmhouse breweries on the board. They're a bit odd. They are breweries which link off either a link or an area, and they don't have specific cards for them. And only a person who owns the link that they come from can actually build in them. So if you've got a link between Kidderminster and it might be Wolverhampton, it might be Dudley, somewhere anyway, you control when that brewery gets built. Ah, it's, it's, in some ways it nearly felt like Birkenhead all over again for me. <laughs> which is an interesting question I was going to put to you do you feel like in who knows seven years time when this gets reprinted they're going to streamline Birmingham with the same experience they have you know because Brass was played for 10 years yeah that's a lot of experience from, yeah. to learn from what worked and what didn't yeah and most and I, of it worked that felt like almost they've kind of crowbarred in a little bit for me. I don't, I don't know what their design with the map, was. With the map had run out of beer yeah, a couple of times, yeah. maybe. Yeah, and I felt like it was just something they've added on at the last minute to, and kind of to direct players if they if they need that. Oh, shoot, we need four yeah. more beer available. Yeah. And to be fair to them, we've seen it with lots of games take through the ages. Yeah. It took thousands and thousands of online games to get to the data that allowed them to reprint it with those small, subtle changes where it was right. It actually is worth one more and not one less. That is not something trivial that you're not going to get to with a new game like Birmingham that's been developed, no matter how much playtest. I'm not saying they could have playtested more. 
I genuinely think it's impossible to... Fully, that. fully, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why one of those I hate apps of games, because they tear games apart that were not designed to be played thousands of times by the same person. They were designed to be played a few dozen times, and you're very unlikely to find it. But in terms of this, the reason I don't like them is that if you grab that link early... That is an early monopoly on a key, key mechanism. It's very, very powerful. And you've got that ace in the hole where you can always go build brewery, two barrels. And because those barrels can fly anywhere for you and not for other people, so other people can never access that beer because they haven't got the link to it. You're just like, well, I can flip whenever I want. And while other people are there, like, oh, there's one barrel of beer. I need to grab it. You're like going, oh, isn't it? Isn't it a major part of the game? That, yeah, they're, they're, they're benefiting, but they're missing out on as well at the same time. One of the major parts of Brass Birmingham is that scramble for beer and when do you build it and how do you build it? Well, I'm fine to miss out on that, mate. I'll just score my points. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, that's mean that person's missing out on a whole part of the game and everyone else is just thinking, well, that's just a cheap rubbish mechanism Mm, within the game. Yeah, I'm not. I I don't think that farmhouse breweries work that well. So another thing to do with trade is the specific merchants whereby you can only trade pottery in a certain place merchandise in a certain place whatever it might be an unnecessary limitation or much needed variety I actually quite liked it okay I liked that uh, you had to kind of almost specialise and at the, from the beginning you couldn't just start off in, in anywhere because you're near to a trade place or you, you had to sort of think well what direction am I going and it kind of made you literally start thinking right from the off uh, about your plan. Whereas in Brass Lancashire, your plan is is very similar, no matter where you start. And I think it goes, you know, I, I don't know how far, but I do feel it helps get away from the scripting. Because it's no longer a case of saying, right, I'm always going to build in this corner, connect to the foreign market, and ship my cotton like you yeah, do in 100%, yeah. uh, Lancashire here. With the, I don't know how far it goes. Maybe we need more of those. Maybe actually part of variety might be to say, in this game, there's three places for pottery and the next game there might be four. So there's relative differences in the value of the industries. That, for me, could be a really positive way of getting away from those games where you sit down and you're just going to do the same thing because the board's going to be different. For pottery, that'd be tough because there's really very few places to build pottery. <laughs> so, so I don't want that, but I know what you're saying. Well, it does, I find that Firstly, you really realise you need to develop those industries near those markets, right? Because you can't build a massive network, certainly not early on, which breaks set game strategies, I agree with you, but makes card draw more important because you have to get the cards that give you, like, if I've got a load of, uh, let's go Kidderminster cards or whatever, and I can't export cotton because they can only build cotton down in that bottom left corner to those nearby markets, then... Do you think that's why they put the wild cards in? Yeah, but yeah, but getting wild cards is still if 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 it's not efficient. You know, if I've got the bottom left area, that's where my network. Yeah, I look at I've got four purple cards, and I'm like, well, that's clear. I've got to build. Oh, it's all cotton. Oh, I can only go cotton to Nottingham in the top right. Ah, <laughs> I'm in trouble now. I really got to think on my feet. Sure, then you've got to try other things, which might be a good thing. You've got a very strategy, but it does emphasise card draw a little bit. But overall, I think it's a positive. We'll, you mentioned pottery, so let's seamlessly segue into them. The really interesting thing about the pottery track is there's five levels, but the level two and the level four pottery, uh, they get you one income and no points. They are basically placeholders. You can't develop them away, so you have to build them in order to build. It's like the ship. 
but in a different way because with the ship there's a level like zero one so you have to develop a way before you get to level one and level two ships and you can really really build the level one ones in the first stage it's very hard to do anyway well that's Lancashire in Birmingham the potteries the level two and four ones don't score you any points but they are handy as placeholders because you put them in and they cost hardly anything and you go that's my area for my pottery and you can claim it early and that's quite an interesting strategy and thanks Pete Duckworth for putting that out to me by the way <laughs> yeah it's, and, and I wonder if it's to do with what sometimes happened in brass where you'd work towards a shipyard and it's quite a lot of effort right have the money available do all that and then something it. it. <laughs> and i feel like maybe here they've said right we're going to give you this little safety net which is to say place this down you know the spot's yours and now build towards and it build towards absolutely because overbuilding is quite rare usually it's like you're know, robin peter to pay paul it can happen if all the cubes go off the board again it doesn't happen that often but once again it's it's encouraging to play slightly different to Lancashire because you, you, if you just had the same sort of things, the same progressions and the same same setup on your personal player board, you, you, this is quite similar to ships. It's similar, but in a but better way. Well, yeah, but they've they've got ships and they've just twisted it slightly, so it's not the same as ships. But you can see that with the resources on nearly all the ones, where mm. unlike brass, they were quite linear, whereas here they feel. Okay, I, 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 the thing for pottery is I'm about to touch on that. The thing with pottery is, it shows to me that they play brass Lancashire a lot. Yes, and they had the frustration from shipyards, and they went, ah, oh, here's a clever it. way. Here's one thing they fixed that you go, yeah. Do you know what? That is a clever way of doing that. I like that. I think everything here, whether we agree that it's a good change or a bad change, everything here shows that they know this game. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. They've, they've at least tried it in in yeah. clever ways that shows a real understanding. It, yeah, absolutely. even with even with things that maybe we didn't like the inclusion of, it shows that they've thought enough about them to put them in there to rectify perceived problems. Yeah. And one of the examples we were talking about earlier was with the chips they included. So I think it must have happened in the playtesting where they broke the bank. They realised that with whatever they announced on the Kickstarter in terms of number of poker chips wasn't quite enough in some mm -hmm. extreme cases. Without making a stretch goal, they added those couple of extra ones they needed to make the bag big enough that under all circumstances, and it just shows the kind of extreme playtesting they must have done to get to it's those... Attention to detail. Yeah. Which, as you said about the Kickstarter ran so well, everything, every component works and fits and, and does its job. It's the attention to detail that you really think, wow, these guys are doing a good job. They've really put their flag on the moon here with saying we were a good publisher so you were talking about the manufacturing track on the manufacturing track the resources you require to build fluctuate up and down the amount of money whether you need iron whether you need coal and also the amount of beer that you need to trade fluctuates between one to zero to double beer to zero to one and it's all over the place it's just a mess yeah I'll, i'm just gonna say i haven't played birmingham enough to get to the bottom of one. Get out. No, you're no longer our expert. <laughs> Again, from a previous point, obviously they're trying to change things and tweak things, and they're not always going to hit that that on the head, and they're all going to change things for the better. In this part, for me, again, coming from a Brass Lancashire point, where I was learning Brass Lancashire, this one just it just messed with my head a little bit, and uh, it didn't it didn't flow for me. It didn't I didn't see the need for it? I get maybe it was a balancing tool where they realised that certain resources were getting under or overused at certain times or to, to maintain the balance of the game. But it does feel like the most inelegant piece of design that they did. And I can't follow the story why. I can't, you know, when I, when I see the other changes, I go, oh, I can see why you did that. See the story, it adds to the flavour. This one just... And maybe if we had a designer diary and someone sat down and said, right, this happened... And there might it, be one. 
<laughs> I don't know. Okay, I think I'm dim, but the different map didn't really have much, too much of an impact on me, other than the fact it's obvious that Birmingham is a major hub. But everything that's in Birmingham is to be slightly different. I think I would have been a bit grumpy if the map was the same. Oh, no, I'm not saying the map should be the yeah. same, but does it change the way you think about the game or play? Or No, it's just... The only real thing that I noticed, uh, it's maybe not so much about the map, it's uh, for the canal and railway scoring. Mm. Is first, I think that was ramped up quite considerably, even on the map itself and within the cards, and that kind of took me by surprise. Because I'm used to, in Brass Lancashire, the, the railway scoring, etc., being a, a decent amount of points, but not game-changing. But I think if if someone does really well their connections and their routes is a, is a massive around Birmingham you can and also yeah. because that's one of the differences as well is that some of the industry tiles have got two transport links on them yes so you get a few of them in Birmingham and, and nearby you're, you can score like 11, 12 or four yeah. link you're like Wah. but that's also a bit of interesting variety because in the original game you knew right two here four here that's also really awesome. matters where you build them right because yeah. you're like hold on that guy's got two rail links in there yeah. I don't want to build this industry tile it's four points to him I mean he's growing five off it yeah mm. things like that do happen Another change they made, wild cards. So you can throw away, in effect, three cards to draw two, use one action to draw two wild cards. Break free from the chains of being restricted, or is it just pandering to the fact that we're not as tough as we used to be and we always want to get out and we don't want to be stuck in a hole by our own poor play? I'm a little torn on this. In the original game, it was really important to have that flexibility then when you could spend your two actions and be able to do something because the map got so tight. And I think it was better for it. In this game, I'm still a little conflicted because it's not something that you can do passively on your turn. You have to, at some point, have made the strategic choice to say, I want wilds for the end game. I really don't know if it's better or worse. You so. always want wilds for the end game. Exactly, yeah. That was. not do I. You. I think you pretty much do have to have them, especially for the end game. When, you, when cards are limited and you don't want to be sort of stuck in a corner and not being able to react to anything. So you need those wild cards. Also, I felt that they were almost served as a reminder that you can do this action in Birmingham. I think it, was, it felt less strategic to me it was kind of crowbarred like not crowbarred but it was kind of shouted out like you can do this in major action whereas in brass lancashire like you would use your two cards to to get you out of a problem or to just get you into a different area and i felt that brass lancashire did it a you wouldn't plan to use the two cards in lancashire you wouldn't go this is part of my strategy i've got these two cards and i'm definitely gonna do it there in this you can go this will get me out, especially the beer problem at the end the last turn, the beer issue. To have it convinced me it's better to have it as a preemptive action than. I don't want it at all. I don't. Yeah, yeah I don't. Live, think it's live on the sword, die by the sword. It's a less elegant way of doing it for me. Whereas the two cards just fit in nicely with the gameplay. It's just a case. Of, oh no, I'm stuck here. Or you know what? I really need to get to there the next turn. So you used your two cards. Then that was your that was your turnover. This one, it just feels a little bit sort of in your face. I think we're going to see house rules where people bring back the. Wildcards? No, because it's in this, right? So I think it's in it because there's the variety in manufacturing and you can just get into a hole of, oh, well, I haven't got very many valid moves because it's got that slight more variety, I think. Mm. that More than Lancashire, which is tighter, I think it can happen. So they're almost a necessary evil to me. I just have seen big swings at the end because people have wildcards. And, and you couldn't really predict like, oh, I know both... Uh, I'm trying to think... Uh, Nuneaton cards have been played, so therefore... <laughs> and you are, and you are rather than two for one, you're going three for two. Yeah, it's not which, as punishing to do yeah, as well. Okay, is... moving on from here, I'm just going to presume 
that we all love Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham to some degree. Mm-hmm. We're very happy yep. with them. They're great games, highly recommended. So I'm going to move into the last three points and let these people go. Brass London. It's a simple case of do we need it or do we need it badly? Is it an absolute must, preferably tomorrow? I think we need it, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't need it. I think, no, no, I'd think I'd like to see a nice little buffer. So I need to play Lancashire. I need to play Birmingham. And then in a, give me three years with Birmingham. Well, I'm not waiting three years. And then we'll, well, then we'll, have, we'll have a tickle along. Oh, no. And then we'll have brass mayo. <laughs> <laughs> industry you built in my own fish and potatoes <laughs> Guinness. are we saying power grid maps kind of expansion no this is just brass london we'll get on to the other <laughs> thing how quickly do we need brass london <laughs> so other adaptations are they needed are they wanted would it be too much and also will they all need new industries and new rules and new tracks or will a map do so you mean brass London with you know spoon whittling and with hat making, hat making in bell foundries in the East End. And See, we had a discussion about this before. Gin houses. On <laughs> what I want from the next brass now, you've got your brass Lancashire. Just you, we're going to presume there's going to be a next brass. Is the first thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, obviously <laughs> called brass London. <laughs> so copyright. Lancashire has just tweaked the rules of brass, but it's still effectively brass. Birmingham has just, again, just a, a tickle of a change, nothing too dramatic. It has cha- it's changed things that we've already agreed that maybe people who understand brass more will notice more, but the general person will, will not notice that much of a change to brass Birmingham. What I want from the next one is quite, a, not, not a fundamental change, but a bigger jump. I want... I want something new nah. to come from the system nah, I don't want brass. three games almost the same I don't want that Birmingham is very different to Lancashire not to me but when you play it more I think you will think they are very different to each other by very I mean within the fact that they're the same game and their variants thereof it is, they are not small tweaks in there and it's not small tweaks to the way you have to play and even the way you manage your money, the way income generates, you have to take loans. Your networking has to be tighter. The first age networking in Lancashire doesn't have to be that tight. You're not too fussed about where you are because the canals are going to go and then you're going to rebuild. That's just, that's, to me, they're small increments. That's just small No, that's, small that is fundamental to the game. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd maybe, like to see something a little bit more. I think maybe it's... Question of which end of the spectrum you're on. If you're a new player, you saying I'm on the spectrum. Always. Well, we all are. That's why it's a spectrum. It's <laughs> why you like trains. <laughs> I like them. They pay, they pay the bills. I like chuchus. Hey, kitty dinner. If you're new to brass in general, I think they're probably just kind of the same. But if you're a deep, involved brass lover, they are fundamentally very different. It's just a question of how far down that rabbit hole you've gone. And I guess how, how deep is the well as well if they go back to it saying how many people have played it enough to go, oh yeah, change, oh yeah, change. But when I'm seeing people, and of course, obviously we are in the bubble of the hobby players, when I see people who have got brass, I seem to see them saying, we've played it again, we've played it again. On what you played this week, on Twitter, on General Geek, I've played it three times this week, I've played it another two times this week, and, and I've seen repeated plays like we did when it first came out. We played the bejesus out of it, because it was fantastic. We are like, we just need to play it, and I'm learning, and I'm getting better. So I think that that market will come up quicker than maybe you think. 
I was thinking of some other ones that I would like after London. London, obviously, I think I've said it enough, London number one. But some US-based ones like Pittsburgh with Steel Country or Chicago with the meat coming in and the manufacturing having to pack it off. Yeah, uh, Detroit with the old motor industry. But, all right, on to more modern settings. Yeah, I was thinking about China and Brazil, Indonesia. The, the thing about the more modern settings, maybe Detroit is a bit further down, but... The fact is that when you're dealing with this sort of industrialization, there's a huge environmental impact. So for the modern setting, it might be a little bit, you know, when you're looking at cutting out, if you do a Brazil one, what, let's destroy the Amazon to, to make beef, to, to get it out, yes, do gold mining, open gold mining stuff. Maybe that'd be a bit controversial, but on that point, I want us all to remember that whenever we're talking about Brass Birmingham, this is the making of Mordor. This is what Mordor was based on, and when you're playing Brass Birmingham, you're basically Sauron or one of the ring <laughs> So let's not forget that. Let's remember that you're an imbecile. Okay, well, we're not going to forget that. I also could put it here through in the Ruhr, Brass Ruhr, <laughs> maybe. Okay, final two questions. And this has definitely been covered, so probably isn't going to take too long. Uh, introducing new players to the system, Puria, Brass Lancashire, or Brass Birmingham? Lancashire. No question. Yeah, Lancashire. Uh, Lancashire as well. Yeah, because of the beer and the wild cards and because there's yeah. more of a pattern and because Birmingham swings a bit. So, final question. Now, I put Desert Island here. What I meant is, okay, you can only take one of these two versions to be part of your 10-game crate when you're going away to Desert Island. You've got to play it 20 times while you're there in six months. Lancashire or Birmingham? Oh, I can't. You have to. That's why you're here. That's why you're not getting back. Right now probably have to say Birmingham because I just don't know it and I'd rather spend 10 games learning the like getting to know the game than repeating classic brass for 20 games no brainer Lancashire all the way I'm still getting used to Lancashire I'm not ready for Birmingham you are ready man. I'm not you I'm can not do it baby to be. I mean, tough very tough Lancashire just because the tightness and the less swing and I feel like you're going to get a more consistent play experience for all the players at the table whereas Brum has got that slight wildness and I'd, I'd want what I want to do is play Lancashire 20 times with people and then play Birmingham 20 times with them the same people because then you'll we played a three player game of Birmingham the other night with uh, all three of us who played quite a lot of brass and it was it was intense it was really really good really good I didn't win <laughs> well done Peter again <laughs> guys that is both brasses thoroughly shone rubbed down even we have it uh, Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancashire thoroughly given a and, good and Brass London and Brass London <laughs> and Brass Mayo thoroughly <laughs> run through and dissected and looked at and whatever else you want to add go on now go on throw some more in some more words for that viewed yeah go on keep going tickled yeah go on <laughs> go, give me more than that Puriad <laughs> fair enough <laughs> beautiful we need to remind you that uh, myself and Puria and Eleanor at least will be at Tabletop Gaming Live walking around in a game pit polo shirt with pit crew written across the back. I will be anyway. Uh, come and grab me and abuse me for whatever reason you yeah. feel like. Don't forget it's our new logo. New, uh, thanks Sean for mentioning the new logo. New logo. That Sean arranged. So everyone say thanks to Sean for the amazing Sean logo. Sean had to pay a lot of money for. <laughs> <laughs> me and Eleanor will be sharing a <laughs> Eleanor's got her own. No. <laughs> you are not sharing my daughter's t-shirt, so can you please leave? 
So you'll see us there on 29th of September, Alexandra Palace in North London. Lots of people going, lots of people you've heard on here or who contribute in some way to the game pit. So we'll see you there. Uh, other business coming up shortly we're going to start as you know our wrestling coverage we're going to fire off with the top 10 most anticipated hopefully with a guest or two who you may have heard of and then we're going to do our traditional treasure hunts this time we're going to try and keep some reviews mixed in the middle rather than just treasure hunts but we've got quite a heavy schedule to get recorded and out so um, we'll see how that goes the build up to Essen starts here we need to say some thank yous thank you Sean Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, Puria. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, everyone, for lasting this long through quite a long episode. Indeed. We'll catch you in episode 116. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the Dice Tower Network and the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify. If you wish to contact us, we're on the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also join our guild on Board Game Geek. Come along there to, to chew the breeze. We are on social media. We have a Facebook account. We are on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, we have our YouTube channel where we have our pit stop videos. Thank you very much for listening. Music by E. Aaron. Oh, <laughs>